I don't know what's in my flask. I don't. Okay. I have a lot of brands. Okay, to clarify, I don't so it's know not what like this is. No, it's okay, just, good. So a, you know that much. It's not like it could be Sprite, it could be water. Like you're you at least have that narrowed down. That's good. All right, everybody, thank you guys so much for joining us. This is a special episode for us. This is uh, our second time doing this, but this time, you know, last time we did it toward the end of our season. I was revisiting our Oscar episode. This time we are kicking off the season with this. You might have been surprised to see this pop up in your podcast feed, but that's right. You're Missing Out is coming back for Season 2. If you are listening to this the day it comes out, I can tell you that the first episode of our new season will be our episode on All About Eve with Phil Iskov. But right now, we are all back on mic, and we are going to be talking about the 94th Academy Awards. So this is our special. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about, uh, we're normally talking about older films. We're normally talking about films that are uh, decades old. But this is our chance once a year to talk about the films that are being recognized this year, uh, the films that were selected by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. All of us have watched at least a fair number of them uh, or watched, uh, in my case, we watched all of them, you know, going through these. We're going to talk about them, each category, each thing. Uh, We're going to give each category its proper time, unlike the actual Academy this year. We got to kick things off talking about best picture. Uh, Just to let everybody know, a little bit of preface on this one. Uh, If this is not your bag, first off, it's going to be spoiler heavy. Uh, second, if this is not your bag, just check back on Thursday. We're going to be talking about All About Eve, which was itself a, a Best Picture winner. Um, so if you guys want to hear something about classical film, that's going to be the whole rest of the season. But for this one, we thought we'd, we'd kick it off as a bit of a warm-up. We're talking about films. And now, should also note, look, we're kind of shooting from the hip on this one. We got our reactions. No one is being attacked by this. This was a very contentious year. It feels like the Oscar campaign has gone on for uh, seven years at this point, and everybody has a personal stake in every film. And if you don't like one of the films, people decide that you don't care about the planet Earth or that you are personally attacking them or anything like that. Not that uh, if we're if we if we have a take on a film and you feel differently. Hey, man, that's cool. We'll see what bears out in time. We'll see how many of these wind up in the National Film Registry and how many of these wind up films that a year later uh, we don't remember were nominated, which I think happens every year. So, Kyle, I am assume we're going in alphabetical order. So what are we which film are we talking about first? Best Picture nominee nominees. Uh, the first one alphabetically is Belfast. Belfast. All right. So here's the thing with Belfast. This was a movie that. I think it took a while for it to come out. And one of the problems I think with the way that we deal with movies now um, and the modern landscape is that stuff gets seen at festivals so early by a select group and gets kind of that assessment. And the movie already has a discourse around it before the public can see it. Belfast was a movie that I have seen so many people be very dismissive of and talk about, a, talk about like an Oscar front runner where by this point in the race, Belfast is absolutely not a front runner. It has it has won virtually no precursor awards uh, of any note. But also talking about it like it was like Green Book, right? I feel like in 2018, there was Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody, which were the movies that everybody's like, this is so bad, it doesn't even deserve to be nominated. This is terrible. It's the regressive bad Oscars and we hate it. And like that's happened every year since but the movies aren't as deserving of that ire. Like last year, and we talked about it on our episode last year, last year we talked about Trial of Chicago 7, 
And uh, our entire point about Trial of Chicago 7 between Tom and I is just going, it's fine, everyone calm down. Because uh, people were so mad about that movie last year. They were still mad about it in fucking October when I went to Fantastic Fest with my friend James, who was still harping on that movie. I'm like, come on, man. Like, uh, enough. It like, stopped, yeah, I get it. It stopped existing. Like, it's it's fallen from the public consciousness. There's no reason to be mad about it anymore. But Belfast, so I was expecting, like, a very by-the-book, very, you know, I hate the term Oscar bait. Um, but, you know, there's no other way to convey, like, the attitude around it. Like, people were so pissed off at this thing and treating it like it was such a by-the-book ordinary thing. And then I actually saw it, and I, I, I not only think the movie is very winning and very charming, but it's a lot more, not just personal, but I think a lot more bold in what it's doing than anybody wants to give it credit for. It's 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 more stylish. Uh, there's a lot of interesting choices, both visually and, and storytelling-wise. There, it's it's told through the perspective of Braun as a young child, which is filtered through pop culture. So understanding the troubles in Ireland through the the prism of old westerns he saw on TV and Thunderbirds and and things like that, I think is is very fun. I don't think anybody would be mad at this movie were it not perceived to have been an Oscar frontrunner at one point. I I think it's at worst it's an innocuous film. I find it charming. I think that it's got a, a good cast. I think Jamie Dorn is very good. Um, Katrina Balfi is very, very good in it. And it's like 90 minutes, which I can't remember the last time that a Best Picture nominee was 90 minutes. And as somebody who watches these every year, it was very nice to watch a movie that knows exactly what it wants to do. It gets in, it gets out, it does what it wants to do. Do I think that it could have used some refining? It's it's definitely a little raggedy at times, but I also think this was just like, this was never meant to be a groundbreaker. This was meant to be like, uh, Kenneth Branagh is making a small uh, personal film in between massive Agatha Christie adaptations. I think it's good. If you haven't seen it, check it out. I, I, I enjoy Belfast. I found it touching. I, I think it's sweet. So, Belfast. Yeah, it's fine. I mean... You know, I have no ill will towards it. I think there's some strong stuff in it. It's definitely, a, I think, a good-looking movie. I definitely think it needed, like, two or three, maybe four more passes on the script because this feels very much like a rough first draft where, like, you've got a great beginning. You've got a really good ending. There's a great scene in the middle with um, Jamie Dornan standing down some protesters but then a lot of it in in between all those those three scenes feels very rough and kind of first drafty where there's like i don't know with um the grandfather character and the grandmother character where you just like wait he's sick now uh okay um this very like unclear dramatic stuff going on with like oh i got to go work in england and i'm back from england but they want me to work in england even more it's like uh, okay i mean i get it like it's all clear it just feels like I don't know, a lot of money's being left on the table, metaphorically speaking, with this movie. Um, and really, like, it's it was pretty much like a quick little experiment for Brana just to shoot something while he waited for all the nonsense around Death on the Nile to kind of calm down, which, I mean, seemingly never calmed the fuck down. They just kind of ended up releasing it and going, <laughs> look, if Army Hammer eats people, I, I mean, whatever, we got to release this fucking movie. Letitia Wright wants to get herself canceled, like, from history. Great. Oh, Russell Brand is trying to sell like sell things based around the Ukrainian war and how it's like good. I, I don't know. He just made a quick little movie and it's got this like bad rap, which 
in some ways I kind of get, it's kind of like, it's almost like if Roger Corman said, hey, make me Roma. It's like two thirds the running time of Roma and it's more entertaining to watch, but you don't necessarily know if that's good or not. It's just <laughs> easier to go. It's easier to like ingest. It's like, okay, I know this Whopper is not good for me, but it's easier to eat than a seven course meal at a Michelin rated restaurant. That's but <laughs> it's not bad. Uh, it is definitely, I think, the weakest of the good movies nominated for, for Best Picture. We'll get to the bad one, but this is not it. It's, I just think, the worst of the pack. I'm so glad we've got video just so I could see Kyle's reactions to the nonsense that I spew. Kyle, what do you want to talk about next? Next on our list, alphabetically, Coda. All right, Coda. So that's my 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 slot to talk first now. Um, uh, this is a movie I knew nothing about going into it. Um, it was a movie when the nominations came out. I was like, what the fuck is Coda? I was like, what what is this? Is Johnny Depp in this? <laughs> a movie that doesn't exist? But it's an Apple original and uh, made it very easy to watch because, hey, it's on my television. Yeah, fuck all of you guys. I like watching movies at home. But it's a movie about... Uh, CODA is basically an acronym for Child of Deaf Adults. So it's about this one girl who is the only one in her family that is uh, can hear. Her parents and her older brother are deaf. And the the, the father is a... Uh, the, he, he's a fisherman. The brother is a fisherman as well. The daughter helps because she can hear, so she can do all the stuff that they can't do. And well, they don't make much money, it's kind of just the family thing. Uh, but as she starts growing and expanding in high school and trying to break out of her shell, she we realize, you know, it's revealed she's actually a very good singer. She just needs someone to help sculpt that so she can become even better and get a uh, uh, an audition to a, a musical conservatory. And it's about the push and pull of familial obligations and your your own dreams and trying to become your own person. Not groundbreaking in that level at all. Nobody's going to come out and say it's groundbreaking in that level. But what it does have that is sadly kind of groundbreaking still is its focus on uh, deaf people, deaf Americans, and not like making them like the butts of jokes or that they're freaks or anything. They are just given this real interiority. You've got this very realistic lived in sense of what it's like being in a deaf family. Um, it's very warm. It's very heartfelt. Uh, you see every beat coming a mile away. Like I said, this is the script probably could have been the first draft was just written by a bunch of monkeys in a room. And then a deaf person gave it a pass. So it wasn't like offensive, but it is good. Like you feel, you get wrapped up in the emotions by the end and the acting's good. I mean, you've got, I mean, kind of inarguably the preeminent deaf actress of ever in Marley Matlin playing the mother. Uh, I think the guy who steals the show, Troy Katzer as the father, Troy, I'm saying uh, Troy Katzer, excuse me. Um, I put an A there, uh, probably steals the show as the father who is this just weed smoking, long haired, just hanging out. Can't stop banging his wife, even though like they have, they have an athlete's crotch and he's just like, come on, I got to keep banging my wife. Look at her. She's fucking hot. And you just go, all right, I get this guy. Um, the daughter's good. The brother, I mean, it's just like a well-crafted, like family crowd-pleasing mid-budget movie, which you would think since everyone on film Twitter, I'm coming after you fucks on film Twitter right now. 
everyone's like, oh, we don't make mid-budget movies anymore. Nothing just like, oh, there's no superheroes, no CGI. It's like, well, fuckers, you got one, and now you're mad, so you're just fucking throwing the baby out with the bathwater tonight. But it's a good movie. Honestly, it's like right in the middle of the pack for me, because it's like nothing groundbreaking, but it's got the lived-in sense of reality you want from this kind of movie that gives it a fresh coat of paint. Uh, And it's got what I think is a star-making turn from Troy Kotzer. I think, I mean, spoiler alerts, he's probably going to be my number... I think he's my number one guy and best supporting actor. Gotta just spoil that a bit, but, like, it's a good movie. I mean, you'll watch it. You probably won't remember it in a week, but, like, you had a good time watching it, and, uh, you know, I'm glad it's here. You know, get people's eyes in front of it. So I I agree insofar as, like, I, I... It was definitely something I had no expectations for. I had heard about it, but it was one of those things that I think I put in the same category when it was before the nominations came out. I kind of had in the same category as a movie that got nothing this year, which is Come On, Come On, which is one of these films that like a certain sect of film Twitter like really rides for. And it's very like heartwarming to the sensitive boy film critic crowd and whatever. But, you know, one of those things that it comes out, they talk about it, but then maybe gets ignored, maybe gets whatever. So when it racked up the nominations, did especially Best Picture. I was very surprised. Uh, Put it off for a while and then watched it. And initially, I mean, look, the promotional uh, material for the movie does it no favors. It absolutely looks like that kind of Oscar movie. So I was very surprised when it starts off and it's very funny. Like, from the get-go, yeah. it has a lot of humor. It's very funny. Like, Tom mentions the scene uh, where they, you know, that the parents go to the doctor. The daughter has to translate as the doctor tells the parents they have a sexual disease and have to stop going at it for a while. And I was just so pleasantly surprised with how charming and winning it was. As Tom points out, it is not uh a a groundbreaking script in terms of the story or anything like that you know how it's going to go uh you have a fair amount of stock characters in terms of i would say the interesting thing about this movie is that typically when you watch a film the deaf character if there is one is a stock character and what i think is so interesting about this movie is that every hearing character is a stock character. I loved seeing Eugenio Derbez turn up in a dramatic role as the heartwarming music teacher. Like, I thought that when he popped up, I just went, oh, cool. You're doing this now. That's awesome. But I love seeing that. But, like, it's a stock character. They're all stock characters. The friends are stock characters. And the the core deaf characters are the ones who are given dimension, who are given agency, and what I think is more important are given sexuality because it's so rare that any kind of person with a disability is also shown as, uh, you know, as, as a sexual being. So I think that was very important for the film to do. I think it was great to see Marley Matlin play a different kind of character. Um, I agree with Tom Troy Kotzer is fantastic in this film. Uh, he's really, uh, he's really bringing a lot to it. Yeah. It's, it's also a thing where uh, the way I put it was this, you know where the movie is going to go from minute 15. If you've ever seen a movie, you know how this story is resolving itself. You know 
how the film is going to reach its climax. And yet, even though you know it's going to happen, this film works so well that you're still crying when it does. When the final performance happens and you're watching her sign and sing, it still moves you, even though you shouldn't be. Like, even though the cynical part of your brain is like, I know where this is going. I'm not going to let this play me. I'm not going to listen to me. It still hits you. And so I think that, yeah, it's it's nominations, honestly, are, are well-deserved because we don't really recognize the mid-budget movie anymore. We don't really recognize the straightforward crowd-pleaser. And I think it's okay for us to recognize a film that does that really well. Not everything in the Oscar race needs to be esoteric. So, yeah, I'm all for Coda. Next up, Don't Look Up. Okay, so this is a um, a contentious film this year. Um, I think that the biggest... Pro- I mean, first off, it's it's setting aside Adam McKay, the fact that David Sirota is involved. He's not got the best online presence. He's got some rabid fans. I think the biggest issue with a film like Don't Look Up, truthfully, I was... Because I, I should say, when it comes to Adam McKay as a political filmmaker, as a serious filmmaker, I really like The Big Short. You know, I, I'm a big fan of The Big Short. I did not care for Vice. And I feel like this is this one is a big step down from Vice. I think the problem with this film, uh, with Don't Look Up, I understand wanting to tackle the issue of climate change. I truly do. Um, I think the biggest issue with Don't Look Up is a structural one. I don't actually necessarily think the premise of using a, a meteor coming to Earth as a metaphor for climate change is terrible. I don't think it's the best metaphor because they're two different things, right? You know, climate, it's like climate change is a, you know, they don't actually work as a one-to-one, but I think a stronger storyteller could make that analogy work. I don't think that that's impossible. I really don't. I think the issue with this movie is kind of the issue that McKay has as a, political filmmaker as a serious filmmaker which is i think that when it came to the big short he got a lot of praise for being a person who could take a complicated topic that most people didn't understand and boil it down into a simple amusing uh concept kind of the way that like when we watched bill nye the science guy or beekman as a kid it was like I'm going to take a complicated topic and I'm going to boil it down and make it or like why we watch The Daily Show or John Oliver. You know, we're going to do that. I think the problem with that is that while that worked in the big short, because, yeah, most of us don't understand what the hell happened in the housing crisis. Vice was an issue where Vice was a movie whose tone was very much kind of like the same thing as Big Short, where it's like, yeah, I bet you didn't know what was going on. Thankfully, you got a smart guy like me to to show you how wacky it was. And with Vice, at least for me, like somebody who was kind of politically aware back then, it's like, no, motherfucker, we all knew Dick Cheney was bad back then. We knew this. But there were people who maybe didn't know this, right? There were maybe people who didn't follow politics at the time. And I get that for them, that could even be informative. I still think that movie's a mess, but it could be informative. The problem with this movie, twofold. One, it is extremely condescending in how it talks about climate change even though it is a very real thing we are dealing with right now and it never explains climate change the big short explained the housing crisis vice tried to explain the bush administration by using this meteor metaphor it never actually gives anyone information on 
climate change. It never actually helps somebody who doesn't understand the situation understand it better. Instead, it simply looks at what it perceives as the politics of the situation and the gridlock that prevents us from finding a solution to these problems. Except, number, you know, in that case, you're already dealing with people who either know that this is a problem and don't have the power to fix it or don't care. You're not winning anybody over with this. The other issue is if he's trying to make Dr. Strangelove, which he very clearly is with this, another like apocalyptic satire. Dr. Strangelove works because Dr. Strangelove, every single character in that movie is deranged and is flawed and is it's it's absurd. And and the humor in that movie is feeling doomed and looking at it and and feeling like we are the observer here. We get to draw the determination of every single person in this movie is out of their mind and making things worse. Adam McKay gives himself a mouthpiece in this movie or arguably two mouthpieces in this film. The most generous reading is that he views himself as both the Leo DiCaprio character and the Jennifer Lawrence character in that he's willing to admit some of his own flaws in the Leo character who gets swept up in celebrity. But even so, this movie fails because it has two characters who throughout the movie are pointing out how dumb everyone is and how simple a solution there is to this. And that's not that that doesn't help anything. It's just smug. It's just smug and aloof. It doesn't do any good. I don't know who it's trying to reach. It is simply a movie for people who recognize that climate change is an issue to pat themselves on the back while not actually making any points or salient observations or offering any solutions. It's just, it's the epitome of people posting in like the way of the burn Bernie Sanders subreddit about how good Bernie Sanders' policies are. That's that's great if you think that. I don't. I, that's fine. But you're getting off on feeling like everybody. You're getting off on feeling like man. Everybody here says I'm so smart. Of course, because everybody there already agrees with you. And then you get really hostile if anybody criticizes the work because if anybody criticizes any structural issues with Don't Look Up, any of the terribly flat one note characters. There's nobody in Don't Look Up nearly as interesting as the titular Doctor Strangelove. If anybody criticizes any of that, you turn around and go, I guess you don't care about climate change. No, I do. I just think that your takes on celebrity culture are really hackish and dated and feel like they came from 2003. This movie feels like it's one step away from making a Paris Hilton joke, for God's sake. Don't Look Up is 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 unfortunately very tired and lazy and has theoretically an opportunity to make an impact and, and just whiffs it entirely by being too self-satisfied. Okay, so as the apparently one fucking jerk-off in the world that actually enjoyed Vice... I mean, plenty of people did. It got nominated. Yeah, plenty of people, but also plenty of people that aren't going to be around when the fucking polar ice caps melt. This movie fucking sucked! Like, I'm... Like, it's it was so fucking bad. And... I'm going to one-up Mike and just say the actual metaphor is bad. It's literally, it makes no fucking sense because climate change is a man-made problem. An asteroid that comes breaking off the edge of the galaxy and hurtling towards Earth is not, in fact, a man-made problem. It is just the galaxy being the galaxy. Uh, like, I've, I've made this joke before. Godzilla versus Kong has a better climate change metaphor then don't look up. And it's not trying to have a fucking climate change metaphor, but lo and behold, there you go. And like, I, I started the movie and I was like 50 minutes. I was like an hour in. I'm like, 
yeah, it's not great, but like, I think people are getting a little too mad about it. And then I looked at the, the runtime. I was like, how the fuck is there fuck an hour and 20 minutes left of this movie? The satire is not only just unfunny, it's wrong. It's just like, again, it's missing the point completely. It is smug. It is condescending. It's one fucking note. And you just watch the same fucking note over and over again. And by the time, by the fucking time Leo gets to his network, I've, uh, you know, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore moment. I was just like, this fucking guy thinks he's fucking Patty Chayefsky. He thinks he's Stanley Kubrick. And you know what? You're not even Alan Taylor, motherfucker. You, I wouldn't trust you to direct Thor 2 after this bullshit. I'm sorry. Fuck this movie. I don't know. Like, it's just bad. It's just bad. Guys, complete change from last year. Me and Michael both hate the same fucking movie. So there you go. Next on our list, we have Drive My Car. Okay, so we go from a movie where I am very passionate about how much it fucking sucks to a movie that I acknowledge exists. <laughs> it is a good movie. It is higher up than Coda for me. So it is in the top 50% of the, of the I was you know, but it's a movie where I, I just don't know, like, I see everybody get so passionately just up in arms about drive my car. Oh my god, fucking drive my car. The fucking red sob and they smoke, man. Like, fucking this is cinema, bro. I'm like, yeah, it's good. It is good. I got wrapped up in it. But like burning a few years ago, I I sit back and go, I get it. And I like it. I like what you're serving me. This is also three hours. Does it need to be? This is a lot. This is a lot. If you're not, ha- if your movie doesn't have a detour where your main characters alter the course of the Civil War, you don't need to be three hours. I'm sorry. I got to put my foot down here. You don't need to be three hours. But it is a good movie about the power of art, about uh, grief, about learning how to come out and like live a real life instead of sheltering yourself from all the pain that life can throw at you and that art can let you find your way and come out but also it can be a shield to hide from all the stuff you don't want to deal with there's a lot of great stuff in here but again it's a movie where i just i don't see it fellas i'm sorry you guys aren't like you know, may, I, I, I'm not joining the meme brigade about Drive My Car, but it's a good fucking movie. It's better than half the movies nominated. It's funny that Tom says, I almost everything Tom says, I feel about a different nominee. So this is going to be fun. What's funny about Drive My Car, and it's funny Tom brings up Burning, because Burning is another film that I had trouble vibing with until I got to the end. Now, I happen to, uh, I, I like Haruki Murakami, the, the author who both of those films are based on. Um, and interestingly enough, both of them are based on short stories. What I found fascinating, I was so transfixed by Drive My Car, I ended up getting the book um, that the short story is from, uh, that, that Drive My Car is in. And the short story is only 40 pages. And they managed to make a three-hour movie out of it. What I find so interesting is that I thought, I'm going to read this 40-page story and I'm going to look at this and go like, oh, they added all these subplots, they added all these things. And instead, somehow, everything about that three-hour film feels perfectly in line with the short story. Like, it's just an expansion on the themes. Um, I watched Drive My Car, and I, during most of the movie, had a similar experience to what Tom's describing, where I was sitting there going, all right, you guys have overhyped this thing. Everybody's going nuts. Everybody's overhyped this thing. And then 
you get to that moment toward the end where the driver explains her experience with her mother and they talk about grief. And it was this moment uh, akin to uh, another movie I love, Call Me By Your Name, was a similar thing where when I watched Call Me By Your Name the first time, the movie felt disjointed. The movie felt, to me, like I was kind of like, where are we going with this? I mean, I it's beautiful, but I just don't really see where we're going. And then when Michael Stuhlbarg gives that speech, the whole movie comes together. And it was like, all of a sudden, like the bow was tied on top of the package. And I, I felt it all. Drive My Car was a similar experience for me. Um, and it is a movie that I have been excited to revisit. Um, it is a film that uh, really just kind of, it's a movie that really just kind of, it grows on you. I, I think it's it's a film that you kind of have to just let wash over you. Uh, it's, it's a, you know, it, it's tackling a lot of different themes without ever necessarily being so didactic as to spell out its themes. It never has a moment where like anybody says exactly what they're thinking, but instead it really is an exploration of, as Tom noted, grief and communication. And the other thing I love about it is that it leaves things ambiguous. It leaves things, um, in a way that that you kind of have to figure out why we got this information. There's a whole subplot about uh, a man who's who's discovers the infidelity of his deceased wife and ends up befriending the man, or you know, communicating with the man with whom she cheated, uh, one of the men. And the movie never has a moment where somebody goes, "This is why I did this." And inst- or, or or never tells you like exactly why that scene is there, and instead leaves it for you to sort of put together those themes and, and find why you feel it's there and, and what that means to you. And I think that it's the kind of movie that, in the best way, people can walk away from and, and feel different things about. It's true of another nominee this year. It's true of uh, two years ago's Best Picture winner, Parasite. Um, there were certain movies where... Uh, that are, I think are so well done that that everybody walks away knowing what the movie was about. We all understand the themes. Uh, even Once Upon a Time in Hollywood has that too, where you walk away, everybody knows what the themes are, but your conclusion and your journey along those themes is different. Um, yeah, I, I was I was thoroughly impressed by Drive My Car, uh, and I was not expecting to be. It's I, I'm shocked in a way because of the way the Academy is. I'm surprised this got nominated in all the categories but i'm glad it did it it's definitely showing a broadening of the academy scope in a really good way so drive my car i think it's on hbo max now check it out folks yeah i was just going to say that uh full transparency this was one of the movies i have not gotten around to seeing it's probably low priority for me admittedly just on glance but it's quickly shot up at least to the the first hand couple of ones that i'll probably see this weekend oh definitely do i mean set aside the time for it it's definitely an investment uh because it is three hours which is also the reason why I haven't seen the new Batman yet, because it's just who's got the time. But it really is just something special. Um, I do. I had the time. And I loved it. Up next on our list, we have Dune. Sure. No, I, I shouldn't be that dismissive. Um, I think Dune is, is is visually engaging. I I like Dune fine. I don't have anything against Dune. I think that Dune is is insanely overhyped in terms of i mean people are i i think the interesting thing about dune is that dune 
was the blockbuster for everybody who had rejected blockbusters up until this point. I think that what you saw was an overwhelming praise for Dune for doing things, or uh, not just things, but for, for doing things that a lot of contemporary blockbusters have done in terms of character, in terms of visuals, but that the kind of people who often complain about everything's a superhero movie, everything's a franchise, everything's IP, are so quick to dismiss those movies for now, like in this one, because they could attach an auteur to it, because they could point to it and say, no, you don't understand. This is Denny Villeneuve's vision. This is absolutely all Denny Villeneuve's vision. I mean, sure, I guess. Like, but it's also the Frank Herbert book. It's, it's, it's actualized it. And then the people who are giving it praise going, yeah, well, you know what? No other director could properly translate Dune to the screen. David Lynch tried and it couldn't work. Yadorowski tried and it didn't work. Denny figured it out. And it's like, yeah, man, Denny figured it out by adapting half of Dune. The problem that Lynch and, and, and Yadorowski and all these guys trying to adapt it before had was, how do you fit all of Dune in one movie? And the solution was, don't. Okay. Like, I I enjoy it. Was, it was visually impressive but not so radically shocking compared to other films we've had recently. Um, I think it was a good cast. I think that Timothy Chalamet is a good Paul. I think that it was, it was a solid cast making a really solid adaptation of Dune. And if this had become the blockbuster of the summer, I would have been very fine with that. I think that the taking of this one film and declaring it, a, a radically individualistic work of art compared to other movies out at the time. Like, just the, the fact that at the same time we were watching people turn around and, and go, LOL, Kingo, Eternals, Space Crap. This is so dumb. Cinema's gone down the drain. But also going, Duncan Idaho, Spice, Masterwork, is, is very bizarre. I, I like Dune Fine. Um, I do. I, I enjoyed watching it. I'm excited to see part two. I have the. I bought the Dune Blu-ray set that gives me the little box to shove my hand in and feel pain. I like it, but I do just think it's weird. This thing that's happening now, where people have so hardened themselves against the Marvel movie and IP that they are now embracing other big studio blockbusters like Dune or the Batman, or any of these, that it's absolutely fine to enjoy. I'm probably going to enjoy them too, but it's weird that they're just kind of going like, no, 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 you don't understand. Movies made by this one studio are bad and evil. This other studio, Autor Visions! Ah, you should see. Like, I don't I don't understand why we're doing this. So I think Dune is good. I think Dune should have gotten all of the technical nominations it got. Uh, I, I enjoy Dune fine. I maybe think it's a, in terms of Denny Villeneuve, I maybe think it's not as impressive as Blade Runner 2049. And then if I had to pick one of those two to get the nominations, I'd probably go uh, for best picture. I'd probably would have gone Blade Runner over this, but whatever. Maybe I'll like Dune more when part two comes out because the stuff I liked in the book is all the stuff that we got at the end of this and then into part two. That's always the stuff I like more. I don't know. I like Dune fine. I, I think people overhype the hell out of it. I think it's a weird phenomenon going on with this uh, and the way people are responding to it. But yeah, it's fine. It's Dune. It's cool that somebody made Dune. I like Dune. Dune. Dom? Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I don't... 
it's half a fucking movie. Like I don't I don't get it. It's not a complete experience. It's got one of the most graceless cut to credits I've ever seen in a movie because it's just like, oh, this is just not over. This this is less graceful than any Marvel movie with well, we'll see you next year. It's like at least like Infinity War ended with like, oh, Thanos won. This could just be the end of the story. That's insane. Where this is just like, oh, they're riding on horseback to, you know, do some things. And then, surprise, fuckers, it's over. You go, oh, okay. This is not satisfying. I do also think it's a little too dry for its own good. Um, I think Villanueve style works for Blade Runner where there is that dry sense of like, what's what's being human what's not being human are robots more human are the humans less human blah blah blah. it's like okay that's cool in dune that feels incorrect i don't know like it feels like jason momoa as we you know we joke about duncan idaho is the only one playing his role like a human being and not like someone that's like soft whispering in a fucking perfume commercial i don't know um it looks great. I mean, it's 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 Villeneuve. It's gonna look great. It's it's got some. It's got a lot of great stuff in it. But at the end of the day, I keep coming back to, it's not a complete fucking movie. It's literally on every sense of the word. This is not a complete story, and it's fine. Maybe Dune Two will get me going and make me go Dune One masterpiece. Dune Two even better. I'll fight the gods who say anything against Dune. But right now, I don't know, bro. I got half a fucking book. There's a whole, there's a lot of crazy shit that's supposed to be coming that I didn't get in this fucking movie. So, sorry, boys. <laughs> I'm, uh, it's it's fine. It's good. I actually, I actually saw this one. Uh, watched it the first time. Did not um, get through it. And then I read an article that said to go into it with the mindset less of that this is a Star Wars and more of a Lord of the Rings. And I'm not saying that this is the same caliber as Lord of the Rings, just in terms of the world building. And I think I enjoyed it a lot more the second time. Helped that I was in an IMAX theater. Um, but yeah, I just appreciate y'all's reactions because it's very reminiscent of me. And uh, when Destiny first came out in 2014 of like, yeah, I the, the guns are good, but there's no story. I don't know what I'm shooting at fucking nerd i will say it it does at least get some credit for uh replicating the experience of reading dune which is i'm halfway through this book Uh, i'll I'll get to it later i'll I'll get to it which is exactly what warner brothers and and villain whoever doing Uh, we'll get to it well well you guys next on our list we have king richard fuck me i have to talk about king richard um this is the movie I kind of expected going into this to be maybe not worse than Don't Look Up, but I was like, uh, a sports biopic where Will Smith is doing an impression of a real guy, and for some fucking reason, it's not about Venus and Serena. Fucking great. Awesome. And then I started the movie and was immediately surprised that Will Smith is doing an impression of Eddie Murphy's impression of Larry Holmes. I was like, this is a fucking choice. Will Smith 
I don't know if he knows he did it because I might be the only fucking asshole in the world that remembers the Larry Holmes bit Eddie Murphy used to do. It keeps going, like the movie's going and it's like, okay, there's some, this works as a sports movie. Like there's that basic rags to riches, underdog, oh, look at these girls, you know, all the white people, they're giving them shit, you know, they're being passive aggressive because they're from Compton and all this, which is like, yeah, that fucking sucks. It's great. Awesome. This is some interesting stuff that would have been a little cooler to see from, you know, the actual athlete's point of view. Um, and they definitely whitewash what a fucking nut job Richard Williams is. So there's like weirdly no drama to the movie. You just keep watching going. Okay. Yeah. Like they succeed. Great. They su- Okay. They succeed. But it is competent. It does work on a basic level. Truly surprised that it's 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 in here. To be honest, yeah. I mean, it's like it's a decent movie. There's there's a there's there's too many moments though where it feels like don't be a menace to South Central while drinking your juice in the hood. That should automatically take it out of any sort of awards consideration. Like, there's a scene where Richard Williams is about to shoot some guy, and lo and behold, oh my god, there's a drive-by that does it for him. And you go, okay, yeah, we get it. They live in gang-infested Compton. But I'm being a little too dismissive. It is actually a good, enjoyable, functional sports biopic. Will Smith is good. I don't think he's good enough to be nominated. Spoiler alert again. I'm breaking all the rules, motherfuckers. But it's good. It's better than Belfast. It's better than Don't Look Up. There's some good stuff in here and there's ideas that it's striving towards about black fatherhood and especially that kind of generational uh, idea with black fatherhood of being like a middle-aged guy in the early nineties. And so in some stuff they're dealing with like how the black men of that time would sort of respond more to the stuff they grew up with instead of looking at what their children are growing up with. It wants to be this thing about, well, well, look at all the crazy shit this guy did to, you know, make his daughter successful. And they're successful in spite of some of the crazy shit he did. But like I said, it kind of whitewashes it. So you go, it's more like, oh, this guy's kind of just annoying instead of like, well, this guy maybe shouldn't have fucking kids because he's a fucking nut job. But it's good. Again, it's a functional, decent movie. Genuinely surprised it's in here. Mainly because it's a biopic with impressions that's not about the movie industry, but it's good. I don't know. We're, I'm going to throw it to the guy in this podcast that likes it a lot more than me. It's true, I do. Uh, by the way, Tom, that that moment you single out as being too like movie esque with the shooting and all that, I thought the same thing you did, right? That scene, Richard Williams. There's a gang member. Richard Williams goes to go shoot him, and then he gets killed in a drive by. And I thought the exact same thing as you, where I was like, I get that you want to convey an idea, but this is maybe a hackish way to do it. And then that happened for real, it turns out. Which is nuts. Uh, That's just straight up, that just happened. Uh, That was a a real event in his life. Um, Yeah, I, I did not have high hopes for King Richard other than Will Smith. I'm a big Will Smith fan. Um... I have wanted him to get an Oscar for a while. I think it's one of those situations where he has deserved it for Ali. He has deserved it, uh, arguably, for Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, I think that he is a very skilled performer 
who has absolutely deserved an Oscar for a while. So I was interested in seeing this one. And I had somebody tell me, like, I saw it and it's not that good. So I I went in with my expectations low, figuring this was going to be the kind of movie that he gets nominated for and doesn't get anything else. And I had heard the dust up from people going, well, why isn't it about Venus and Serena? Even though Venus and Serena were involved in the film. So this is kind of their perspective rather than necessarily us following them. I found a lot going on in this movie that I think is very interesting. It is a movie that it is easy to watch and just take as a standard biopic. If you're watching it at home and you're looking at your phone and you're like doing whatever, it's easy to miss some of the stuff in this movie. But I think that this movie is doing a lot. I think that it is. It is about Venus and Serena in the same way that To Kill a Mockingbird is about Scout. It is about the way that she views her father. And the thing that I think is so interesting about this movie, it is a movie where Venus and Serena Williams acknowledge and depict the sacrifices that their father made and the decisions that their father made that helped get them to the place they're at. What people are mistaking it for is a movie where Venus and Serena Williams express gratitude for the sacrifices their father made and the decisions he made to get them there. This is a movie that matter-of-fact states what Richard Williams did. It doesn't depict every single thing, and I think a lot of events in this film take place in the periphery, and I know some people would prefer that those events be brought to the forefront. Um, his, his physical abuses, his other family, his showboating in front of the camera, his issues with trainers and even with the sisters themselves. A lot of people wish that was more to the forefront. I think it is so interesting that this movie takes a character like Richard Williams and decides to depict him the way that these girls knew him. That, that yes, he's there, but also this is about their childhood. You see that they get to be girls and they get to be playful, but only in the periphery. Only when Richard isn't busy with them, isn't training them, or isn't putting them through school. And uh, Ingenue Ellis, I think, really helps this film a lot. Um, I think that there's a moment in this film that I think is extraordinary, which is where the two of them are bickering in a car, and he snaps. And the look on her face, there is never any mention in this film that Richard Williams is physically abusive. There is never any scene depicted in the shadows where he's striking anybody or throwing anything. There is never anything that is the obvious inference that he is physically abusive, but the look on her face when he snaps tells you he is. I think that, yeah, I, I think there's a lot going on in this movie that I find very interesting. I think that the introduction of John Bernthal about halfway through the film really gives the film a new juice and a new coat of paint. Um, I think the choices this movie makes, I, I think it is the Williams sisters in a lot of ways reclaiming the narrative about their father because if you know richard williams you either think this is the genius who made tennis superstars or you think this is the monster and the showboat in front of the camera and i don't think that this film pretends either of those isn't true but it is simply them recognizing their father and and trying to give people their point of view on it yeah i i think there's a lot going on in this movie i think it is worth digging into i think it is worth the attention 
and I'm pleasantly surprised to see it get recognized as it did. Also, because I, I read a review on Letterboxd that very astutely pointed out it wasn't until I watched King Richard that I realized I've never seen a movie about a black female athlete before. Which, it's kind of true. Uh, unless you count like a fictional film like Love and Basketball. Um, in any event, yeah, I think King Richard is interesting. I think that you can get a lot out of it if you give it a chance. And uh, yeah, it's it's certainly, if you are going into it if you haven't watched it yet because you're thinking this is a generic sports biopic, maybe that's all you'll get out of it, but you may get something more, so give it a chance. I, I enjoy it. Next up on the list, we have Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza. Okay. I love Paul Thomas Anderson, right? I, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, uh, I'm, a, I'm a white film nerd on Twitter. Of course, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, but I love Paul Thomas Anderson. I do. Uh, it, pretty much every year that Paul Thomas Anderson has had a film out, I think that movie should win Best Picture, right? Uh, I, the Master should have. I, I love Inherit Vice. That should have. Um, uh, Phantom Thread. I, I love Paul Thomas Anderson's films. When this trailer came out, I was all in on it. I think I watched that trailer, you know, 10 times the day it came out. I was so excited for it. Um, and, like, this is... I um, keep thinking, like, this is going to be his year... That's so awesome. People are loving this thing. It won the National Board of Review. I can't fucking wait. And it deals with John Peters and 70s California. This is so my jam. And I went, I saw it, and I came away not knowing how I felt about it. I didn't even give it like a letterbox rating. I just logged that I saw it because I'm like, I don't know what I think of this movie. Um, maybe I'll come around, like I'll probably come around on it. But at the time, I couldn't quite figure out how I felt. I mean, the the one thing I did know is that people have been tying themselves into knots to try and like this movie and say they like this movie without acknowledging that there's a romance at the core of it. Even if you think it's a flawed romance by saying, like, it's not actually about a romance. It's about friendship. Come on, guys. This This movie doesn't work if you don't acknowledge that there's a romantic tension there. You can acknowledge that it's a taboo romantic tension. You can acknowledge that it's not an appropriate romantic tension. But you're twisting yourself into knots to try and, like, stay on the moral side of things while justifying you like this film. As for me, I really wanted to like this movie. I really did. And with time, I don't. I don't like this movie. I don't understand. I think that it is doing a lot. It's very scattershot. It is more reminiscent of... A, a, PTA movie that a lot of people love that I'm, you know, I like, but it's lower for me, which is Magnolia, which is another movie that's got a lot of ideas and it is is throwing all those ideas against a board and, and seeing what sticks as opposed to something more deliberate and controlled like The Master or Phantom Thread. But the issue I, I have with Licorice Pizza is just that I think it's got some stuff going on. I think it's interesting, but it is just kind of disjointed. It just kind of doesn't get where it needs to get in a lot of ways, I don't necessarily know if this movie knows what it's about. I think it's got some ideas, but I mean, we're seeing so much debate about this movie and discussion about this movie, um, particularly the, um, the, uh, are the jokes that are, are, uh, the character doing the really crude Asian accent. Are those jokes meant to garner laughs or are those jokes meant to be a statement on fetishization? And the thing that's so frustrating is that when PTA keeps getting asked about that, 
he kind of glibly just responds like, whatever, it's just how people talk then. Which kind of makes it hard to to look at this movie and think that there was the same level of precision and concise storytelling as there is in his other work. I really want to go to bat for this movie. I really want to be able to say I love this movie. I think there are interesting scenes in it, and it's something that I will. I am excited to revisit certain moments. The John Peters chapter of this movie I think is really good, but I just find this movie kind of a mess, and I do kind of feel like it feels to me like a lot of the people who come away from this movie really loving it are really loving Alana Haim, who is incredible in this movie, but are really loving that character and falling for her in the same way they, that Cooper Hoffman's character does and finding her so engrossing and maybe missing that this thing is kind of messy and kind of just not going I just, I, I can't put the pieces together on this one and I really want to, um, but I just can't get there on this one. I don't, I, I, I don't vibe with it beyond like, I don't know if we did not see Paul Thomas Anderson's name on it. And this was some other film that came out at a festival the exact same way. I do wonder if people would be giving it as much benefit of the doubt or, or trying to connect the dots as much as they do, given the responses he's made to it. So I wish I liked it more than I did. All right. Licorice pizza. Uh, great fucking movie. Completely disagree with Mike about everything he just said. Um, I think it knows exactly what it's doing. I think it is very clearly a movie about uh, the changing of the times and about growing up in a time where everything is up in the air and we don't know how to be. Uh, Alana Haim is a woman that is in her 20s and she's trying to be a grown-up. But then she sees this younger kid who is more put together and uh, just successful and just more knowledgeable than the adults around her. And then you have this kid who sees this woman who is kind of out of reach for him because he thinks, oh, well, I'm just a kid and all that stuff. And it's just about people just kind of meeting each other when they need to, where the times are changing and you got two people that represent the different changes of times. Uh, every adult in this movie is a fucking idiot. And that's the whole point of the movie. Bradley, you know, John Peters is a fucking idiot. The guy who's doing the chi- the, the Japanese, you know, gibberish is a fucking idiot. Benny Safdie's a fucking idiot. His boyfriend's a fucking idiot. It's all about like, why are we rushing to become grown-ups? Because grown-ups are fucking morons. And we should enjoy a little bit of the childish nature. And we shouldn't lose any of that. That Koopa Hoffman is like the perfect mix of a grown-up and a child. And Alana Haim is trying to not be a child. But she sees that being an adult fucking sucks. And it looks good. And it's funny. And it's just charming. And... I I would I put it as the best of PTA's movies? No, it's 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 not, but I think it's fucking great. And if he's gonna go ahead and do his own version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood about, you know, the good old days growing up in seventies California, seventies Hollywood, uh I'm glad this is what he gave us, because it's not what I expected, and I'm glad it was this big, sloppy, messy, emotional, funny you know, quote-unquote problematic movie that is, you know, only Paul Thomas Anderson could have made because nobody else would have made this movie and had someone else's name on it. This is a PTA movie, and that's why we give it the the benefit of the doubt because we've got almost 30 years of this guy showing us that he knows what he's doing, so let's give him the benefit of the doubt. You know, I'm not, you know, Colin Trevorrow wouldn't make this movie, but if he did, we'd, we'd have to go, 
this was an accident. <laughs> but uh, Licorice Pizza, great fucking movie. Kyle, did you see it? I did see it. I would say I am kind of in the middle between the two of you. I would say... Oh, fuck you. It, I just mean in the sense that it is not a movie that I, I left being like, whoa, I can't believe I saw that. That being said, it is a movie that I think about... I don't know if this will resonate. It's a movie that when I think about it, it's like... Uh, it's a it's a theater movie. It's a movie where I, I sit down and I remember just being engrossed and being taken to an actual place in time. And just like Tom said, the uncertainty, like I didn't know what this movie was about going into it. By the end of it, I still really didn't. But I had fun. I also think this next movie that we're talking about, uh, I'm just bringing in my two cents in it because it was a double feature. I saw them both at the same time. Uh, similar, similar, uh, take on my part of just really enjoying just being taken into a, a theater, just, uh, I don't know, shutting the world away for two hours and being taken to somewhere that I genuinely believe even as crazy and as far-fetched as it, as it might sound. And of course the next one we're talking about is, uh, Guillermo del Toro's, uh, Nightmare Alley. Which I will take the lead on, uh, Guillermo, one of our boys, what, love Guillermo, love Love our Mexican Totoro. Love that foul-mouthed little bastard. And every time he makes a new movie, we have to pay attention because he's no longer making a movie about, I don't know, human-sized cockroaches for the fucking Weinstein Company. So if it's not that, it's bound to be good. Um, and this is a remake of an older movie by the same name, which is in turn based on a book. And... Guillermo does what a lot of movies do these days, which is if they're remaking a movie from the 40s or 50s that are based on a book, they go a little more towards the book and and dig a little deeper into the subtext of the things and make it a little more modern. But he also keeps it grounded in this neo-noir 1940s, 1950s cinematic style with his own gorgeous visual sensibilities and really digs deep into the story of Bradley Cooper as this con man absolute shit heel who just keeps leeching off of people and taking the things that they're good at and repurposing them for his own his own needs and his desires and that his own needs and desires aren't based on anything pure or good it's all just about money and ego and attention which is going to lead him down the path of ruin which is uh you know pretty fitting for the world we live in today uh <laughs> I think in many ways this bests what the original movie did, but I think by expanding its scope and digging deeper and letting things breathe more, it almost in a contradictory way, it bests itself, but also hinders itself. You kind of miss that brevity of the original movie. You kind of miss some of the grace notes that it left kind of unsaid, but I think overall the ultimate power of this movie is in the visuals, in the acting. Maybe the best cast movie of the year. Maybe the best looking movie of the year. We'll get to that that category in just a little bit, folks. I think it is a interesting movie. I, I'm glad that this is his sort of blank check movie after winning the Oscar for The Shape of Water. You know, that typical Oscar movie where a woman fucks a fish god. Everyone's seen that before, but have you seen it like this? Oh, I'm sorry, you haven't? Shut the fuck up. I'm glad Guillermo's able to still do what he does without 
um, completely hindering what makes Guillermo movies Guillermo, even if he does shift away from fantasy land and kind of digs more into the human monsters where basically what if the, your main character was Michael Shannon from the shape of water, you know, a real fucking monster of a man who just uses and abuses people. Even if he doesn't actually know he's doing that, uh, you know, i.e. a very American te- story about the the poisonous nature of the American dream of I need more, I need more, and fuck anybody who gets in the way. But I'm doing it for good. I'm a good guy. But then <laughs> I don't know. Um, it's a great looking movie. It it's really entertaining. Um, it gets close to the original. I wouldn't put it past the original, but it gets closer than it has any right to be. And uh, Guillermo, you know, Totoro. You cocksucker, you. Uh, I'm glad you made this movie, and uh, I can't wait to see what the next one is. Mike, break my heart, why don't you? <laughs> I, it's another case, like Luxury Piece, another one I really wanted to like. Um, I went in, and I was excited for it. I'm also a big fan of the original film. If you guys haven't seen it, the original film, it's a Tyrone Power film, uh, very kind of short, very neat, very tight, you know, B-movie noir as it was at the time. The The original film is akin to a Twilight Zone episode, right? It's it's kind of, it's not telling us a lot about any of these characters. We're watching them interact, and it leaves you, the audience, to sort of fill in the blanks. And um, in truth, Tom, in praising the film, uh, sort of acknowledged a lot of my issues with the film, um, which is that you know, he says it kind of bests itself and it kind of hinders itself by expanding all this stuff. In my case, I just find it that, that the hindrances are more than the betters. Um, I think it's kind of akin to, you know, when I was, I, I, the best thing I can think of with my problem with this, and my problem with a lot of films that are modern remakes of older films, is I think a lot of people get the idea when they talk about older films, and we deal with this, the registry all the time, where there's a lot of ambiguity in older films, either intentional or because of the code or whatever it is and they had to kind of gracefully get around things and i think that a lot of people who love older films and who make films love to imagine what those things are if there's an implication of a tragic thing that happened in some character's backstory in a film they love to imagine what that tragic thing is they love to fill in the blanks and i think that's great when watching a movie that's part of the fun of watching these films the same way that when I was a kid, I loved having my Star Wars toys and sitting down and I got to fill in the blanks of what the Clone Wars were or how Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan met. I got to fill in all these blanks. What happened to Boba Fett? You know, all these things. I got to fill in all these blanks. The problem I find is when you start to expand those things, I think where people are getting frustrated with some of the Star Wars material, got frustrated with the prequels, or frustrated with Book of Boba Fett or anything like that, is that now, instead of having the infinite possibilities of the answers to these questions and the fun of the ambiguity, you're now getting one person's vision for what that is and one person filling us in. And if you like that person's idea of what fills in those blanks... You're going to have a good time. If you don't vibe with that, then it's a slug. In my case, I like the fact that the original film does not tell me where this guy comes from. We start with him in the circus. We don't know 
what possessed this guy to be this way? Maybe he's just like that normally. We don't actually have any real backstory on the old man that he cons. He's just an old man. Like, we don't get a lot of information. And for me, the experience of watching Guillermo's Nightmare Alley, I agree that it's visually stunning, particularly the first and third act. I think that the stuff at the at the the carnival and the sideshow is incredible and it looks so good and it's designed so well that when we switch to the kind of ballroom where he's doing his higher end highbrow show, I just find myself wishing I could go back to that carnival. But then when we get to the, the rich old man in the mansion, I'm back on board and I love the look of it. My biggest thing with this movie is that I think that the ending is perfect and it sticks that landing so well having Bradley Cooper do the, you know, Mr. I was born for it and laughing, that you almost feel like this is where the movie was built from. Is he watched the original Nightmare Alley and was like, this would be the perfect ending, and then started building the movie around it. I think it may have been better served to just kind of, to, to leave a lot more out there and leave a lot more ambiguous in the same way that Shape of Water works so well because it doesn't actually answer a lot of questions. There's not a long monologue where somebody explains, let me tell you all the details of the sea monster and the people and where they come from. And also, Sally Hawkins gets cuts on her neck and they become gills. Let me explain the science behind that. Next YZ. Yeah, I think that this film maybe, I mean, it didn't do well to box office. I think that's more to do with how the fuck do you market this movie? In terms of if you give away what it's about and you give away the Bradley Cooper is a, you know, is a mentalist and has these tricks, you've given away the movie and people can kind of put it together. But I just, for me, think that there were choices made in this film to flesh it out that I don't think help it. I think the original film is 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 a bit meaner and is a bit it's leaner and it's meaner because it doesn't give justifiable motive to things. People are just shittier. Um, so for me, I just kind of struggled with this one. Um, I still, I I'm probably going to enjoy watching it again visually but i don't know if it's something where i'm going to be able to sit for the full time and and, and do it again but much like tom i am excited for what guillermo does next i do love that next on our list the power of the dog i mean hot damn uh truly like i it was something i didn't get too quickly because my partner and i um decided to to go through the filmography of jane campion because uh i had gotten her to watch the piano and she loved that so much we decided to watch her other films so I didn't get to it until recently after all the Bronco men, Henry memes had come and gone and all that. And I really felt myself, this was one of those ones that was so hyped up from everybody that I was like, there's no way it lives up to it. And not only did it, I think this is, this is a, to me, this is a canonical classic. And I say that with the feeling that Jane Campion only has one canonical classic already, which is the piano. I am not somebody who is so enamored with her work that I, go to bat for in the cut or anything like that. I really like bright star, uh, but bright star on the piano. I really like the rest. I think are they have ups and downs. So I wasn't sure what to think with this, but I just think that this is so smartly done. Every problem that I expressed with nightmare alley, with the way that it fills in blanks and kind of gives people a lot. This movie has a lot of rich ambiguity. It gives you a lot of silences and a lot of pauses for which to read into motive. I think it's beautiful to look at. I think it is a movie that rewards a second viewing because I think the first time you're so busy trying to get acclimated because at the beginning you're so you you 
you're trying to do that thing you do with any movie, which is when it drops you into the in, in into the story. You're looking at each character and figuring out which archetype they are. And this movie very quickly kind of takes you off the path for each of those archetypes. Um, I think Cumberbatch is phenomenal in this movie. I think he's doing a great job with, with uh, the character. I think he's a perfect choice for that. I think that I don't understand people who leave this movie confused. Like, I think there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of motive, and there's a lot of things to read into in terms of, like, there are a lot of different interpretations for what uh, Jesse Plemons' character's connection to Bronco Henry is, or even, you know, what exactly went on between Phil Burbank and Bronco Henry, or any of that. There's details you can have ambiguity on, but there's nothing confusing about the actual plot. Like, it's pretty much there. Uh, you know, it just doesn't have an Ari Aster-style monologue where Cody Smith-McPhee at the end goes, I was so upset that my mother married and she was attached to this bad man that I killed the bad man by putting anthrax in his hand because I made... Like, I think it's pretty sure. I think this is an exceptional film. I think this is um, one of of the Best Picture nominees. I think there are two this year that have a real... that have a genuine chance of being something that gets inducted into the registry in in 10 plus years time this is one of them i think it is uh i i think it's just a fascinating film that that is truly an artistically done film without any ounce of pretension it is a, a film that is is subtle and powerful i just i i was blown away by by power of the dog i think it's i think it's an incredible film i don't disagree everything he said is correct this is a great movie I wasn't expecting it to be that great because of how people can talk about movies sometimes. And I have to come in with a little bit of like, okay, relax guys. It's fine. This is a great movie. It's the first Jane Campion movie I've seen. And I'm incredibly impressed by this movie. Comebacks is amazing. Cody Smith's amazing. Kirsten Dunst. I mean, it's just, everyone's fucking amazing in it. It's a great fucking movie. Um, I, I don't know what else to add. It's just, it's, 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 it's fantastic. And I'm, I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad, I'm really glad it's nominated. Um, being that it's a Netflix movie, it could have just not been nominated, but it is. And uh, you guys would benefit greatly from watching it because this is fantastic stuff. It's top on my list this weekend to watch. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, last, most certainly not least, West Side Story. Okay, West Side Story. My A number one Best Picture nominee. My number one movie of the year. Steven Spielberg, you know, that scrappy little upstart decided, uh, oh, you know, I feel like I want to remake West Side Story. And everyone, as they should have, said, I don't know, Steve. I don't know if you're good enough to crack West Side Story. And he said, relax, guys. I got this. And surprising to everyone that a guy who's really just kind of 50-50 with this whole cinema thing, uh, he made a movie that is, uh, in my estimation, and in the estimation of a lot of fucking people in a surprising way, best the original. How's that? One, Tony Kushner wrote the script, updated it, and not updated it by putting it in 2021, but just updating it to really heighten the themes and really bring everything to the fore. Uh, by changing Maria so she's not an annoying, spoiled little fucking brat. Changing Tony so he's not this dopey, wide-eyed waif that looks like he replaced Coach on Cheers. And just heightening all this stuff and the relationships with everybody and the themes and the subtext and the politics and all that stuff. And then, being that he's Steven Spielberg, 
directing the ever-loving fucking shit out of this movie. I was on a plane when the SAG Awards were on, and I was watching it on the plane, and every time they'd show clips from movies, you'd be like, okay, yeah, uh, you know, I might want to see that movie. Then they'd show clips from West Side Story, and you go, oh, this is what happens when God decides to come out from heaven and say, here's what cinema can do. It's not, well, what if a meteor decided to come to Earth? No, this is God saying... This is what cinema should be. You fucking jerks, pay attention. And I know there's the fucking giant white elephant in the room with Ansel Elgort. I know he's a problem, guys. I'm sorry. He's good in the movie. Yes, he is by far the weakest part of the movie. But don't fucking tell me you don't feel a little fucking twinge in your heart when he runs for Maria at the end and he gets fucking shot in the goddamn heart. And you're just like, fuck! Okay, okay, he's good in this movie. I'm sorry. Rachel Ziegler, who the fuck did she piss off that she didn't get nominated for Best Actress? Ariana DeBose, unfucking believable Unbelievable. Give her every Oscar. Give her Benedict's Oscar. She deserves it, because Benedict's winning. Let's be honest here. He's winning. Give her his Oscar. How the fuck Mike Face doesn't get nominated? Hey, listen, I don't know. Whatever. Sometimes the Academy gets it wrong. They got it wrong. This is an unimpeachable fucking masterpiece when they go into the gym gymnasium and and steven spielberg just goes oh yeah yeah it's cool you you shot in the plains yeah you know the america we are living in oh my god everything about west side story is perfect it is (laughs) i like He's still doing it. The fact that he's still doing just masterful work this late in his career. I can't believe it. This movie reinvigorates the love of cinema. What cinema can be. And I'm just so fucking happy it exists. It is an absolute masterpiece. Like Mike hinted at, this is the other movie that you can absolutely see in 10 years getting inducted into the registry. Because... He beat a movie that's a fucking classic that's in the goddamn registry. Everyone should fucking watch this movie. You you guys all fucked up not seeing it in the theaters. Mike. I mean, what else? Truly, what else can I say? I knew you were going to have this tear that you went on, and and rightly so. I I think it's – I was very skeptical of this project for a good long while. The only place where Tom and I don't see eye to eye on this movie is I – I have to say, I don't think Ansel Elgort is good in this movie. I think that there were there were probably other leads who could have brought a bit more to this because I feel like I don't... The thing about this movie that I think... I agree that Rachel Zegler should have been nominated. We're going to get to that. But the thing about this movie that strikes me is the fact that I don't think Tony and Maria have any kind of natural chemistry. I think that Ziegler just sells the hell out of the two of them. She is so good in this movie. She breaks your heart in it. Um, I think they have otherwise an incredible cast. I think the decision to give Rita Moreno the number somewhere and make her that role is such a smart choice. This film, like Tom acknowledges, the Tony Kushner script is brilliant. It finds a way not to reinvent a classic American musical, arguably the classic American musical. By the way, not to reinvent it, but rather to just find the truth that was beneath the surface the whole time. Um, There's nothing about 
the changes made to this movie that isn't justified by the original text. And I think the thing about Spielberg's directing that is fascinating is that almost every scene is directed and blocked in direct opposition to the original film. If in the original film, America takes place on the roof, now America takes place in the streets. You know, um, every kind of thing, every kind of adjustment and tweak that's made, I think is so smart. Um, the scenes that are added, I think are so great. I think it's easy to watch this movie and look at Mike Feist in the beginning and think, this is not a good choice for Riff. He's too scrawny. He's too childish. This is not a good choice. And then you have that moment when he goes to the bar to get the gun and he's across from real adults and you realize exactly why he was cast and why he is so perfectly cast. Yeah, I think this is an exceptionally made film. I, I'm I'm all for it. I, I won't go on too much longer because Tom already covered a lot of this ground, rightly so. I think it's I think it's great. So now I think what we'll do, uh, Kyle, unless there's anything else. Did you have something you want to say about West Side Story? No, I mean, other than I just want to state for the record that I, I did indeed uh, uh, go and see this in a theater in the middle of a global pandemic. So, and I enjoyed it thoroughly. So, I mean, there was a movie needed to serve as my beta test for uh, Spider-Man. So, and I, yeah, I saw it in IMAX, which was a hell of an experience. Uh, I recommend if they bring it back. Um, so now what we're going to do is Tom and I are going to give our uh, rankings of best picture. And then if you guys are still with us, uh, we're going to go through the other categories at a bit of a faster clip and just talk about where we rank those. So, uh, Tom, do you want to go first with your ranking and swaps or do you want me to go first? Okay. Um, so, yeah, give us your, do you want to go, I'll go one I'll to go, ten or ten I'll to go one? ten. I'm going to go 10 to 1. Okay. And then tell us okay. what you'd swap out. All right. So 10, Don't Look Up. 9, Belfast. 8, King Richard. 7, Dune. 6, Coda. 5, Drive My Car. 4, Nightmare Alley. 3, Licorice Pizza. 2, The Power of the Dog. And 1, West Side Story. So if I'm going to replace anything in this list, I am going to take out obviously don't look up and i'm going to throw it in a pile of fire um i'm gonna take out belfast and i'm gonna take out king richard so my three that i would slot in for those three would be um titan the french movie from julia Ducanau, an unfucking believable movie mm-hmm. um i'm going to put in the green knight by david lowry again mm-hmm. unfucking believable yeah. movie and uh, a movie i think got lost in the fray and I think should be in Best Picture and Best Foreign, uh, Riders of Justice with Mads Mikkelsen. And in my opinion, a truly stunning movie that really completely rewrites what a quote-unquote revenge movie can be and gets to something true and emotional and very powerful. So uh, that would be my three uh, swap-outs. It's funny. We each swap out three. Um, so my my number 10 is Don't Look Up. Number 9, Nightmare Alley. Number eight, Dune. Number seven, Licorice Pizza. Number six, Coda. Number five, Belfast. Number four, King Richard. Number three, Drive My Car. Number two, West Side Story. And number one, The Power of the Dog. I will fully own that the top three are in a league of their own and I think oscillate from time to time. Uh, I could put any one of those at number one and be happy with myself, but that's just where I've got it now. In my case... I would swap Don't Look Up for another movie that got lost in the fray, The French Dispatch. Uh, Mm. Other podcasts have talked about this too. Griffin Newman on Blank Check harps on this a lot, but he's right. It is shocking that that movie is not in every technical category. 
I would replace Nightmare Alley with Red Rocket. Uh, who mm. I mean, that was a hell of a picture. Sean Baker, uh, Simon Rex is great. I it's a if people had problems with licorice pizza, they're gonna have a harder time with Red Rocket. But it's a great film, and I, I folks checked out. And I would replace Dune with The Last Duel, a movie that I think all of us saw and went, well, obviously that's getting a bunch of nominations. <laughs> and then it didn't. But The Last Duel is great. So that would be what I would swap out. Next up, let's talk about uh, – well, Kyle, you can tell us what to talk about next. but Yeah, I mean, I could, you know, one way or the other. So uh, next uh, category is Best Director. Do you guys remember who won last year? That was Chloe Zhao won last year. Yep. Oh, Tom, I should have told you. Kyle's going to ask us if we remember what won in the categories last year. I don't remember what I ate for fucking dinner tonight. Yeah. yeah. No, I yeah. think it's – yeah, go. it's more to yeah, – okay. So, uh, best director. I'll go first on this one, Tom. Sure thing, okay. baby. Best director. Uh, my ranking, number five, Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Number four, Paul Thomas Anderson, Licorice Pizza. Number three, Ryosuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. Number two, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. And number one, Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. I would only do one swap here. I would swap Kenneth Branagh for Julia Ducourneau for Titan, the film Tom mentioned earlier. I think that that is a movie that just the fact that that could even work in any way is a testament to the incredible talent. That she has. It is a movie that quite literally fucks. Um, <laughs> Tom? Okay. So, uh, five for me Kenneth Branagh for Belfast. Number four, Ryutsuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car. Uh, three, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza. Two, Jane Campion for Power of the Dog. And number one, Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. As you put it, Steven Spielberg. I, I was doing <laughs> that because if I was joking that I mispronounced that the same way I probably mispronounced Ryusuke's name. But yes. Okay. I'm swapping out three for this one. I'm putting in, I'm taking out Brana, Ryutsuke, and PTA. Wow. Because I think these three did much better. Uh, David Lowry for The Green Knight, I think absolutely needs to be in here. Uh, one, for the just the actual work, and two, for what he was able to do on the budget he had. Yeah. It's astounding. Uh, again, like you said, Julia Ducanau for Titan. An unbelievably fucking wild movie that should just absolutely not work. And as someone who didn't love Raw, but thought it was fine, and was like, I want to see what she does next. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad I saw what she did next. Exact same experience, yeah. And then uh, Anders Thomas Jensen for uh, Riders of Justice. I really can't Without, I kinda, I'm gonna keep harping on this. This movie is a legit masterpiece. It was my number two movie of 2022, uh, 2021, excuse me. Um, I think it's great, and I think that movie could have gotten a little more love in the, at least in the foreign film side of things. Next up, we have Best Actress. You guys remember who won last year? No, it was Frances McDormand got it for the third time, right? For, it was all right, yeah, somehow. Yeah, that was yeah. That's a weird. And we won't get into it. But the point is, yeah. Uh, Tom, are you going first? All right, so yeah. this is, yeah, this is me. Uh, so I will have to say I wasn't able to get to Parallel Mothers before this recording. So I can't speak on Penelope Cruz's performance. So I'm going to rank the other four. So I'm going to say number four is Jessica Stain for Tammy Faye. Number three is Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos. Number two is Kristen Stewart for Spencer. And number one is uh, Olivia Coleman for The Lost daughter 
I am again swapping out three in this one. Um, mainly because I can't erase Natalie, uh, P- uh, Penelope Cruz because I didn't see it, and I'm sure it's great. Almodovar, dude, fucking rules. He's not making some bullshit. Um, so I'm going to take out Justin Kidman and Stewart. Ah, sorry, soft boys, you're gonna get mad at me. I'm putting in Alana Haim for Licorice Pizza. I'm putting in Rachel Zegler for West Side Story, and I'm putting in Agatha Rousset for Titan because holy fuck is that an insane performance and that's her first performance wow that should absolutely be fucking nominated and um are we gonna say what we think should win i mean if you want to we can well because i would i would give it to uh, agatha Rousset because that's an yeah. unfucking believable oh that's what you mean i i meant like i figured our number one sell it okay gotcha um yeah i will say so for me uh number five nicole kidman being the ricardo's Number four, Jessica Chastain in the eyes of Tammy Faye. Number three, Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Number two, Olivia Coleman, the lost daughter. And number one, Penelope Cruz, Parallel Mothers. Um, and this is one of those cases where I think that the number one is, is um, as much as I like Olivia Coleman, number one is a few steps above the others. I think Penelope Cruz is doing incredible work in Parallel Mothers. I am swapping out uh, two in this case. Uh, Kristen Stewart is right on the cusp because I don't love the movie. I think Spencer is not a great film and I think it doesn't give her a lot to do in it. It's just a lot of asking her to go up. But I think she's doing a lot to bring a lot more dimensionality to that movie than the role asks. But in my case, I am swapping out. I would swap out Nicole Kidman for, as Tom noted, Rachel Zegler for West side story. Uh, And I would uh, swap out Jessica Chastain for, I'm going to butcher this name. I'm sorry. Renate, Renate Rainsfield. Uh, for the worst person in the world, uh, which is uh, hell of a picture, uh, hell of a performance. There's other things I could slot in there if I wanted to, but but I think that that's if that was the lineup of the five, I'd be very happy. The only one that I think is absurd is is the, uh, we'll talk about Kidman and the Ricardos some other time, but we we're running low on time. But yeah, anyway, what's next, Kyle? Best actor. All right. Who uh, won last year, Mike? Oh, who won last year? Uh, oh, well, of course. No, that one's easy to remember. Tom, you remember who won last year, right? I don't remember what I had for dinner okay. tonight. Don't play so, with me. Seriously. No, the reason I say that is because on our Oscar episode last year, all three of us nonstop going, you know, um, so-and-so is really good this year. I mean, you know, he's going to lose to Chadwick, but uh, he's going to lose to Chadwick. And we were just so oh, that's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Thing. Hopkins. It was, it was the insanity of the Oscars moving best actor as the last category just to give it to uh, the man who wasn't there. Uh, Anthony Hopkins wins. Uh, he's not here. Uh, bye. <laughs> okay. So my nominees, uh, my ranking of the nominees this year, uh, number five, Javier Bardem being the Ricardos. What are we doing? Uh, number four, Denzel Washington, The Tragedy of Macbeth, uh, which shows you what a good year it is if I'm putting Denzel Washington's Macbeth as number four. Number three, Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom, hell of a performance. Number two, Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog, and yes, I'm going to own it. My number one is Will Smith in King Richard. Now, for me... Wow! Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Now, I am swapping out two in this case and it's tough for me to do that i almost want to swap out three but there's really good performances it's hard for me to even do two the easy one to do is take out javier bardem and put in simon rex for red rocket 
Uh, anybody who has seen Red Rocket is not surprised by this. Simon Rex is incredible in Red Rocket. And quite frankly, if he was nominated, might even be my winner. Uh, it is hard for me to take out Denzel Washington, who's a very good Macbeth. But Peter Dinklage is extraordinary in Cyrano. And it's insane that the rollout of that movie was so botched that they missed the easy opportunity to nominate him. And even doing that, like, because those are my two, I can't take Andrew Garfield out because he's so good. But it's also crazy to me to not acknowledge Hitotoshi Nishijima from Drive My Car, who is so good. This is a stacked year. It was even hard for me to take out Denzel. I don't even know if I want to take out Denzel. It's a really good acting uh, year for, for lead actor. So the best actor, that's my ranking. Tom? Okay, so I have an interesting feeling with this actor category because um, my top three are all – my top three are, like, great. Like, I, I will give this. So I'm going to say my number five is Bardem for being the Ricardos. Number four is Will Smith for uh, King Richard. Number three is Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick, Boom. Two is Denzel for Macbeth. And one is Cumberbatch for Power of the Dog. Uh, I think easily Bardem and Smith I'm wiping off the board. And I'm – cautiously almost tenderly taking andrew garfield off the board because i think he's great but i do think i have three a third that could replace him quite easily so those three fucking gone get the fuck out of here i'm putting in mads mickelson for riders of justice this is a movie i'm riding and dying for riders of justice dying for <laughs> my number two my second replacement is nicholas cage for pig a movie that should not be in any discussions for this based on the logline, but is actually like a really great, poetic, soulful, just powerful fucking movie that Nicolas Cage manages to not ruin with doing the Rage Cage thing and actually gives you the performance that you get from him every like two or three years where you go, that's right, that's why Nicolas Cage is great. And then I'm replacing, my number three is going to be Oscar Isaac for the card counter. Uh, Paul Schrader has hit a stride after being lost in the weeds for a bit uh, between this and First Reformed. He's really just knocking it out of the park with his lost men searching for redemption thing that he's done his entire career. And Oscar Isaac, I mean, it's the performance he's needed after being lost in the weeds of CGI blockbusters for a while. And it's amazing. Um, I almost thought of taking Denzel out because... I love Denzel. He always deserves to be nominated. But here's my semi-hot take. I think Fassbender's the better Macbeth of the 21st century. Um, but I'm going to keep him because Denzel always deserves his fucking laurels. And I'm keeping him there. And again, Cumberbatch, he just fucking kills it. I, like, like, I can't take Cumberbatch out. But that's my actor category ranking and swap outs. I know Next! how much I know how much it hurt you to take Andrew Garfield out. Like I understand that feeling immensely. He's great. He's like he's that's so the thing. Good. He's legitimately great in Tick Tick Boom. He's so fucking good. Yeah. But I just like I was just like, oh, Oscar Isaac and Card Count is so fucking good too. Uh, I need to represent that. I feel like that movie didn't get any love this year, and it needs to get the love. I'm sorry, Kyle. What's next? Up next, Best Supporting Actress. Tom, you're first. Okay, so that's, oh wait, Kyle, that's did me. you want to? I mean, do you know who won last year? The only reason I say that is because it took me a minute. Um, it was uh, Yoon Yoo Jung from Minari. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, that's right. That's nice. Yes, that was nice, even though I think we were all... The bigger thing from that category last year was the exuberance we all felt when they said 
Maria Bakalova from Borat 2 was nominated. It was the best moment of last year. So, Tom, uh, your supporting actress. Okay, my number five. Dame Judy Dench for Belfast. Number four, Jesse Buckley for The Lost Order. Number three, Anjanu Ellis for King Richard. Number two, Kirsten Dunst for Power of the Dog. And number one, with a fucking bullet, Ariana DeBose for West Side Story. Everyone else, go fucking home. You've been bounced from the bar. You're touching women's asses at the bar. You're out of here. All right, so my run is up. I'm taking two out, mainly because... I just didn't want these bottom two to be nominated because I'm a vengeful god. So I'm finding something to replace them with. I'm putting in Kate, Kate Blanchett for Nightmare Alley, playing the most seductive snake. Please bite me, Kate Blanchett, and poison me to death. And I'm doing it. I'm going broke. I'm Tom. I'm the guy that does crazy shit. Lay us a dough for no time to die. Okay. Now, Tom. Let's fucking go. Let's fucking go, baby. Yes. It's interesting, Tom, that that's your ranking. I have a very different ranking than you. Um, <laughs> okay, here's mine. Uh, number five, uh, Dame Judy Dench for Belfast. Number four, <laughs> Jesse Buckley for The Lost Daughter. Number three, Anjanue Ellis for King Richard. Number two, Kirsten oh Dunst God. for The Power of the Dog. And number one, oh! with a fucking bullet, is Ariana DeBose from West Side Story. There's no question. Uh, is Tom trying to play music on his phone? He's trying to do the the, the ham horn. Okay. I'm trying to do now, the rap air horn, but it's connected to my head. Wait, wait, Tom. Um, Tom, I got more for you. I also swap out two. I also oh, yeah. am swapping out two. I, but mine, I would swap Judy Dench for Toko Miura from Drive My Car. Um, okay. Who's the driver? I think that that is a role that I think you don't appreciate on first viewing how much she's doing because it is so quiet and it is so stoic. Uh, and I'm replacing Jesse Buckley with Susanna Son from Red Rocket. This is technically not her first movie because she apparently shot some like 40 minute thing where she had to play a call girl that she wants expunged from her IMDb. Otherwise she's a musician and posts pictures of herself on Reddit and manages to churn out a really smart, really multi-level performance in in red rocket and she's not getting the attention she deserves for it so that would be my five up next best supporting actor you guys remember who won last year nope yes uh it was it went to daniel kaluuya uh a man who is doing great now everything's great there he is so solidifying his he is solidifying his reputation in hollywood and he will go down in history as one of the most stable men to ever act in a movie everything seems fine everything's, everything's well. coming up millhouse <laughs> so my my ranking for best supporting actor uh very curious i think this might be another case where tom and i are equal but i don't know Number five, J.K. Simmons for Being the Ricardos. Number four, Kieran Hines, Belfast. Number three, Jesse Plemons, The Power of the Dog. Number two, Cody Smith-McPhee, The Power of the Dog. And number one, Troy Kotzer for Coda. The truth of it is, if it's very, it was very hard for me to pick between Cody Smith-McPhee and Troy Kotzer in terms of, I think they're both really great performances and very different performances. The reason I give it to Kotzer is the fact that if Cody McPhee is replaced by a lesser actor in this role in Power of the Dog, that movie still works because of all the other elements going on. 
if Troy Kotzer is replaced with a lesser actor in that role, that entire movie of Coda falls apart. He really helps elevate that movie. I think he's exceptional in it. So Troy Kotzer is my number one. In this case, I'm only doing one swap. Uh, I could swap out Kieran Hines and Belfast if I really wanted to, but I think he delivers. So I'm taking out J.K. Simmons uh, and replacing him with, I think, the most obvious snub, Jeffrey Wright in The French Dispatch. Um, Jeffrey Wright in French Mm. Dispatch, one of the best performances of his career, one of the best performances in any Wes Anderson film. A crime if that was ignored. Very good, very good. I I approve. Um, We got close. We got close on this one. Okay, okay. Five, J.K. Simmons. Okay. Four, Kieran Hines. Three, Cody Smith-McPhee. Ooh. Two, Jesse Plemons. One, Troy Kotzer. We just swapped on the power mm-hmm. of the dog boys. Yeah. Okay. We, we, we just we got lost in the dog pound. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> um, I'm swapping two. Um, so I'm taking out J.K. I'm taking out Kieran Hines. I'm putting in Bradley Cooper for Licorice Pizza okay. because Jesus Christ, is that an electric performance? That's like... When you really think about it, it's like it's five minutes of screen time. But like, I don't know if I've there's few moments I've laughed harder in a movie this year than when they're sitting on like the sidewalk and you just see him walking by and he's just ranting to himself and just throws a garbage can through a storefront window. Unbelievable. Unbelievable stuff. And uh, obviously I'm putting in Mike face for West Side Story. Mm -hmm. He fucking just absolutely destroys it. And if he was in it, it's a toss up between him and Troy Kotzer. Because Troy Kotz is great, but fast, holy shit, he's fucking unbelievable and electric as Riff in West Side Story. Next up, best original screenplay. Ooh. So this is me. Hang on, Kyle. Okay. Who, won last, who won last year, Tom? I don't know. Yes, you do. Because you don't agree no, with I it. I don't. I don't fucking know. Oh, hang on. Oh, this no. Does... oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, Fuck, you reminded me. Wait, I don't remember, oh. so I truly don't. Oh, one Promising it's Young prom- Woman. Oh, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Okay, Fuck. Yeah. Fuck. Right, yeah. Fuck. I need a cigarette. God damn it. Oh, that sucks. Oh, you just ruined my fucking night. God damn it. All right. Fuck you. All right. Original screenplay. Okay. I didn't get to the worst person in the world because I just I just didn't. Whatever. It's Tom. He doesn't do his fucking homework. I'm sorry. So I'm going to rank the other four. So number four is Don't Look Up. Pretty sure that's going underneath worst person in the world because my dog has fucking pissed on carpets in a more succinct and writerly manner than Don't Look Up. Number three is Belfast. Number two is King Richard. Number one, Licorice Pizza. So of the four I've seen, I'm... Wiping away three. I'm playing five-card poker, and I've got an ace, so I'm taking away the rest of my cards. I'm putting in Riders of Justice, because that movie fucking rules. I'm putting in Teton, because, again, that movie fucks. And I'm putting in Pig, because that's a movie that should not work, but that script is actual fucking art. And worst person in the world, I'm sure you're lovely. I'm not taking anything away from you. So you fall in. I'm only taking three. So fuck you, King Richard. Fuck you, Belfast. And really, without a cent of KY in the world, fuck you, don't look up. Right. So so for me, uh, my number five is don't look up. My number four is Belfast. Number three, King Richard. Number two, Licorice Pizza. And number one, the worst person in the world. 
I I say this in part because, quite frankly, and I like King Richard and I like Belfast. I do not feel the script is the strength of either one of those. So, considering my thoughts on Licorice Pizza, I'm I it, it says a lot about the other ones that that is number two. Now, in terms of swaps, I am similar to Tom. Wiping away most of my hand. My number one uh, worst person in the world remains, but I'm swapping everything else out. I'm swapping out Don't Look Up for The French Dispatch. Uh, I'm swapping out Belfast for Red Rocket. I'm swapping out King Richard for Titan. And I'm swapping out Licorice Pizza for Parallel Mothers. I think Parallel Mothers might be one of the best films Pedro Almodovar has ever made, and that screenplay is great. Um, I know some people are thrown off by the ending. I think it makes it so much better. So that's mine uh, for original screenplay. What's up next, Kyle? Up next, best adapted screenplay. So what won last year? I th- did that go to Nomadland? It did not. No. Good. Um, I thought it didn't. The father. It was the father. Good. Good. That was the right decision. Nice. There. Good. Nice. Remember how good the father was? Fucking rules. How good the father was. Yeah, a movie really that good. both of us were not. Through. Okay, adapted screenplay. My number five is The Lost Daughter. I like it more than some. I don't like it as much as most of, of film Twitter, but I do think that that movie suffers from. You know, Tom made the note, and I think he's absolutely right. Oh, really? It's based on a book? Like, it's very obviously based on a book. I, I think so. That struggles a bit. Number four is Coda. Uh, it's, it's fine. Uh, number three, Dune. Number two, The Power of the Dog. Number one, Drive My Car. I'm surprised that I am putting Power of the Dog number two, but I think it's just the fact that having read the short story that Drive My Car is based on, to look at what they were able to grow from that seed, I think is extraordinary. Uh, In terms of swaps, I'm taking out three. I'm swapping out The Lost Daughter for, obviously, West Side Story, uh, the most glaring omission in this category. Uh, I would also take out Coda. And replace that with The Last Duel, another exceptional mm. screenplay, and take out Dune and replace it with The Green Knight. So those would be my swaps. I'm looking at, you know, the things I'm swapping out are three things that I think didn't really do a lot with their source material, and I replace it with three that I think did extraordinary things that nobody else would think to do with that source material. So that's mine for Adapted. Well, we got very close yet again because my number five is Lost Daughter. My number four is Coda. My number three is Dune. My number two, though, is Drive My Car. And number one is Power of the Dog. Totally fair. I, I too, am swapping out three. And two of them are West Side Story and The Green Knight. Yeah, baby. Oh, yeah. Um, But my third is Nightmare Alley. So, um, yeah. Um. If West Side Story was in, it would win for me because Jesus Christ, Tony Kushner, yeah, leave a little bit, little leave a little bit of screenwriting for the rest of us. You absolute beast, absolutely insane omission. That's it's it's truly like I want to find people that didn't vote for it and just like push them down an up escalator, <laughs> so they never stop falling. <laughs> Kyle, what's next? Best international film. Okay, so, uh, uh, so well, I saw on. two. I, it, I mean, for what it's worth, it was another round that won last year. 
Yeah, which I, I remember, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, you recommended it to me on the episode. Yes. And then I think a few days later, I watched it and I cried. Yeah, so, it's yeah that movie fucking rules and, and, and absolutely. Another amazing. round is amazing. Again, no, Nance Mickelson no. should be here yet again. No movie, no movie this year, I think, has had a better ending than another round did last year. What an incredible moment. Okay, uh, Tom. All right, so we're going to have to uh, kind of fix the rotation a bit because i didn't say everything okay, in best that's international fine. yeah that's, that's so fine. mike can speak on this more so for any of these like international documentary and short categories i can just go first and tom you can weigh in with what what you liked out of that sound good <laughs> sure well just because i know you didn't see a lot all right uh in terms of international yeah, film <laughs> in terms of international film uh my number f- now uh, my number five is the hand of god uh, which is very hard. These two are battling for the bottom, and I think they're both great. I really do. The Hand of God, the Paolo Sorrentino film, I like Hand of God a lot. Number four, Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom. Uh, Hand of God is a much messier movie than Lunana. Lunana is a pretty simple, straightforward film. But first off, I think it's great that Bhutan was nominated for an Oscar for the first time. Uh, I think the film is very moving, and I will take concise and cute over messy in this one case. I'm shocked that I'm putting this at number three because I loved it so much. Number three is Flea which I think is an incredible film people should seek out. Mm. Uh, number two, The Worst Person in the World, and number one, Drive My Car. Now, in this case, in terms of swaps, I was only allowing myself to swap out things that were actually submitted by the countries, right? Because the way international film works, a country chooses a movie uh, to submit. So uh, I'm swapping out The Hand of God for Titan which was France's submission to the Oscars, for reasons that make zero sense to me, Parallel Mothers and Benedetta were not submitted by their countries. So I'm not doing the swap on those because they were not eligible. But had they been submitted, absolutely those should be in there. So that's my ranking of international film. Now, Tom, you said you've seen two of these? I have seen Flea and Drive My Car. And number two is Drive My Car, (laughs) and number one is Flea. All right. And uh, uh, Replacements... I don't know. So yeah. sorry, guys. It's all good. Uh, Kyle, what's next for us? Best animated feature. Oh, Soul got that right. last year. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This one, yeah. you've seen all of them, right, Tom? I have. Um, spoiler alert, I don't have any replacements because were there any? I don't know. Um, we'll talk about it. So num- Yeah, we'll talk about it. Uh, number five, Raya. Number four, Mitchell's and the Machines. Number three, Encanto. Number two, Luca. And number one, with a fucking bullet, flee. I don't have replacements because I have not seen any other animated movies. We were so close on this one, too. Um, so, number five, Ryan the Last Dragon. Number four, The Mitchells versus the Machines. Uh, number three, Encanto. And in my case, I'm surprised I did this, but I really rewatched them and, and thought it. Uh, number two is Flea, and number one is Luca. I think Flea is an incredible, <gasps> and Luca is a little miracle. I am swapping <gasps> out. This is tough. I'm I'm maybe a little too hard on the Mitchells versus the Machines because people are too easy on it. If that makes sense, like I like Mitchells versus the Machines. I actually do. I think it's it's well done, and I think it's an entertaining movie. I think people are maybe overhyping it because it plays very specifically to uh, white upper middle class film nerd in a way that I could find a little pandering. Um, so maybe I'm a little too hard on it. Uh, I am definitely, I would swap out Ryan, the last dragon, uh, for uh, a movie called bell an anime film that Kyle and I actually saw together. Um, that is a modernized adaptation of beauty and the beast. 
Uh, it's not one of my all-time favorite films or anything, but I, I do think it's impressive, and I do want to kind of... I want to broaden that category a bit. Um, yeah, it rules. Yeah. Uh, and then here's my controversial thing that I may feel differently on, but I just watched this recently. There's a part of me... I'm not going to make it an official swap, but there is a part of me that would maybe love to get Sing 2 in this category, which would mean dropping out Mitchells versus the Machines. I think Sing 2 is actually better than the original, and I think Buster Moon is one of McConaughey's best performances. But I'm not going to make it official now because I get it. The Mitchell Lewis Machines, I get people like it, and I, I, I do I do need to be nicer to that movie because I'm being a little too harsh. Um, but that's where I stand on animated feature. What's next, Kyle? Best documentary feature. Okay. So in my case... What won last yeah. year? Oh, right. What won last year? Oh, my octopus teacher. Yeah. One of the one of truly one of the worst winners in that entire category. Um not worse than Daybreak and Udi, but, but not great. Um for me, number 5 Writing with Fire, number 4 Attica, number 3 Ascension. Another one I'm surprised to put this here, number 2 Flea and number 1 Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. Uh Summer of Soul is just a movie that is, is, is so impressive, especially for a first-time director in Questlove. Um, and just for what we do on this podcast and, and how much I love film preservation, incredible feat there. Uh, just remarkably well done. Um, I, I This is another case where I'm not really... so I, I liked The Rescue a lot. That was another good one this year that was shortlisted. Um, and I liked Procession a lot, um, which if you guys haven't seen... Um, the rescue is on Disney Plus. It's about the the rescue, uh, the the divers in the cave that rescued those those trapped kids. And Procession is a pretty impressive film about men using trauma therapy, uh, drama therapy, to process their trauma of being abused by the Catholic Church. They're both impressive films, but I would have to take out Writing with Fire, which I actually quite like. Uh, in fact, Writing with Fire is uh, screening right now, uh, I think, on PBS as we're recording this. So. Doesn't help anybody, but check out Writing with Fire. It's very good. So I, I'm not going to do any official swaps on this one. I only saw Flea. Flea is very good. Uh, Kyle, what's next? Best Animated Short. All right, so I'm just going to run through these short categories real quick. Uh, last year's winner for Best Animated Short, If Anything Happens, I Love You? Yep. Okay, very good one. That was a good one. All right, my ranking on the Animated Shorts, number five, Box Ballet. Number four, Affairs of the Art. Number three, Robin Robin. Number two, The Windshield Wiper. And number one, Bestia. Bestia, uh, great short, but if you don't know anything about it, maybe do some reading ahead of time. I didn't know anything about it. Thought it might be cute. Thought it might be fun. It's incredibly disturbing. It is about uh, one of the most monstrous human beings who has ever lived. It's very graphic. It's deeply upsetting, but it's extraordinarily good. Um I would swap out Box Ballet for Bad Seed, which was a shortlisted animated short you can find on YouTube, which is very, very good and very creative. Box Ballet is fine. I'm going to leave the rest because I know some people don't like Affairs of the Art, but personally I'm happy to see Beryl back again, uh, which is a character that's been appearing in, in this director's animated short since like the 80s. Very cool, solid category this year for the animated shorts. Didn't see any of them. Yeah. Kyle, what's next? Oh. We'll get through oh, these quick. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Best documentary short. Best Documentary Short. Okay. Uh, my number five, Lead Me Home. Number four, When what We one? Were... 
Oh, documentary short last year. Um, Jesus Christ. No, he did not win. No. Sorry. Um, <laughs> shit. <laughs> what won last year, Kyle? I don't remember. Colette. Oh, yeah. Colette was cute. Colette was fine. Okay. My number five uh, is Lead Me Home. My number four, When We Were Bullies. Number three, The Queen of Basketball. Number two, Audible. And my number one, Three Songs for Benazir. Not a particularly strong category this year. Uh, I don't actually love most of these. However, uh, just in my time, I wasn't able to watch that many other documentary shorts. Just schedule gets in the way. I would swap out Lead Me Home for a documentary called Camp Confidential, America's Secret Nazis. And boy, howdy, do I wish I could find another doc short to swap in for uh, When We Were Bullies. A very weird film that makes a lot of choices that I don't love. Um, but yeah, Three Songs for Ben I'll put it number one. What's next, Kyle? Best live action short. What won last year? The Neighbor's Window? Nope. Is it a different title that's similar to that? Wasn't Two it? Distant Strangers. Two- oh, fuck. That was, oh, Neighbor's Window was two years ago. Two Distant Strangers. I like that one. That was um, uh, Joey Badass is the lead in that one. That was pretty good. Okay, good. That's right. I like that one. All right. Um, best live action short. Where have I got my list for that? Uh, best live action short. This one I, I'm excited to talk about, truly. Number five, On My Mind. Didn't love this. The director of On My Mind already has an Oscar, and I don't love the short he wanted for it. Definitely don't love this one. Number four, The Dress. Real bummer movie. Number three, Please Hold. Very interesting. Doing a lot of cool stuff. Number two, The Last Goodbye. That's right. Riz Ahmed made like a 12-minute music video, and it's nominated for an Oscar, and it kind of slaps. But number one, I think, with a bullet, is this film called Alakachu Take and Run. Uh, it is a fil- It is the, the rare case where a short film uh, feels like a feature. It manages to, in its brief runtime, I think it's about uh, I don't know, 40 minutes long, something like that, maybe 35, uh, manages to make you feel invested in these characters and feel like you know them. Um, I was so impressed with this short. Uh, Maria Brendel or Brendel is the name of the director. And all I'll say is this. Uh, I don't know if Alicacho is going to win the Oscar this year. It should. But this director, Maria Brendel, is getting a statue in her hands at some point. I think she's so impressive. Uh, really incredible work on this. I would swap out On My Mind for a movie, uh, a short called You're Dead, Helene, which uh, Tom doesn't really watch shorts much. Tom, you would love You're Dead, Helene. It is a horror short in the vein of Reanimator. That is also about, like, moving on from a relationship. It it fucking rules, and I'm very mad it wasn't nominated. It's so good. Um, But yes, uh, Alicacci, Take and Run. Uh, Check it out, folks, if you can. Best Original Score. Best original score. Tom, you take lead on this one. But who won last year? Oh, um, Christ. Uh, Christ did not no, win that no. category. Um, <laughs> oh, Soul. Soul won last year because Trent Reznor got an Oscar with John yeah. Baptiste. Yeah, Soul won. Okay. Tom, best original score. Okay. So, uh, again, I haven't seen Parallel Mothers, so I can't put that in here. So my four will go as such. Number four, Don't Look Up by Nicholas Bertel. Number three, Dune by Hans Zimmer. Number two, Encanto by Germain Franco. And number one, Power of the Dog by Johnny Greenwood. The score one was difficult for me. So I'm honestly, I'm going to take out Don't Look Up and I'm going to take out Dune and I'm putting in. <laughs> 
I'm putting in Godzilla versus Kong, and I'm putting in Halloween Kills. I don't care. Fucking fight me. Those scores rip. And fucking don't look up dozens. <laughs> and Dune is Hans Zimmer doing his Hans Zimmer thing. So, bye bye. And hello to these two. All right, best original score. I don't have the names of the composers here like Tom does. He for once, uh, we can Tom can say it. He did more homework than me. No, uh, I just have the sheet in front of me. Oh, uh, my number five is Don't Look Up. My number four is Encanto. Uh, my number three, Parallel Mothers. My number two is Dune. And my number one is The Power of the Dog. Um, I'm only swapping out one. I'm swapping out Don't Look Up. Um, now, Tom obviously uh, put in, uh, what was it, Godzilla versus Kong and Halloween Kills is your swaps, Tom? Yes. All right. Well, I'm putting in Halloween Kills. Fuck it. I stand Fuck by it. Yeah. That's yes! a really good score. Let's fucking go. That's a Let's really good score. Let's fucking go. I, I, I'm, so I'm swapping out Don't Look Up for Halloween Kills. I, absolutely. Let's fucking go. Yes. Oh, I love it. Best original song. Let, let me just do this quick because I have no real opinion on this. I'm not going to have any runners up. Didn't well, I, see Four Good I, Days. I, okay. Were we supposed to remember what won last year? Okay. Yes. I, what won last year? I don't know if you would, if you're supposed to remember. I feel like out of the two of you, Mike obviously would know more than Tom. But what what won, Mike? It was it was Fight, Fight for, for You from, from Judas and the Black Messiah because that was such an yeah. innocuous category last year. Weird. That was like okay, that was so, the year where like three of the songs had interchangeable titles. Okay, so I'm just gonna I'm, yeah. I'm just gonna run this this quick so Mike can speak a little more because I have no opinions here. I don't know. Number four, No Time to Die. Uh, <laughs> number three, the one from Belfast. Number two, the one from King Richard. And number one, the one from the actual musical Encanto. I, I don't know. Mike, speak more. Okay. Uh, number five, No Time to Die from No Time to Die. That song doesn't exist. I don't believe you if you tell me you remember it. I love Bond it's themes. It's Vapor. I love Bond themes, but after we awarded one of the best Bond themes with Adele for Skyfall, we gave an Oscar to one of the worst for the Sam Smith song, and now we're giving it to a song that does not exist. My number four is Down to Joy from Belfast. I like the song, but it does sound like every other Van Morrison song. Number three, Somehow You Do from Four Good Days. Is it a great song? No. Should we just give Diane Warren an Oscar so we stop nominating her all the time? Yes. Give her a statue so we stop nominating her all the time. My number two is Dos Oroguitas from Encanto because I couldn't tell you which song that is. And my number one is Be Alive from King Richard. Give Beyonce an Oscar. Let's do it, everybody. My swaps. I am swapping out No Time to Die for the most egregious omission, which is So May We Start from Annette. If you have not seen Annette, it's on Amazon Prime. The Sparks Brothers wrote the music. The music is great. The movie is wild. But the absolute best part of the movie is that it starts with the Sparks Brothers singing this song, So May We Start, and it starts to add more and more cast members as they walk to the camera, and Adam Driver and Marion Cotillard and Simon Helberg, and the song is an absolute banger. It should have been nominated. It should have won. I would also swap out Down to Joy for Your Song Saved My Life from Sing 2. Sing 2 is very good. I also have in my notes that I bet even Disney wishes they could swap Dos Oroguitas for We Don't Talk About Bruno, the now number one song in America. And I wrote that note before it was announced that for 
no apparent reason they're going to perform We Don't Talk About Bruno at the Oscars, even though it's not nominated. Fine with cutting out categories. Let's play a song that is not nominated. Sorry, I'm getting punchy. What's the next category, Kyle? Best sound. Um, oh, Jesus uh, Christ. One I don't know what one. I, I have no idea. This category is such a yes, win for me. Yes, you do. Do I? Let's let's yeah. Let's think of a best picture nominee. What would be like the obvious best not best picture nominee that probably wouldn't have won best picture, but easily would have won the best sound category. I don't know. Did they give it to Mank? I feel like Mank won a bunch. No. It was Sound of Metal. Oh, shit. That's so obvious. Yeah, that was very stupid. Yeah, Sound of Metal. Great movie. Uh, Good fucking flick. All so right. sound. Yeah. I, do you want me to go first on this one, Tom? I mean, not like it matters. I don't think we really have a, a dog in this fight, but. Um, I'll just, I'll just okay. go first. Yeah. So, number five, Belfast. Number four, Power of the Dog. Number three, Dune. Number two, West Side Story. Number one, No Time to Die. And I am wiping three off the board. I am putting in The Suicide Squad. I am putting in Godzilla vs. Kong. And I am putting in Army of the Dead. Because why the fuck is Belfast in this? Why is Power of the Dog in this? And and also, Dune. I just want to piss people off. Fuck you guys. Dune's not that good. Eat my ass. Uh, my number five, No Time to Die. My number four, Belfast. My number three, The Power of the Dog. My number two, West Side Story. My number one, Dune. I have no swaps because I have no strong feelings on this category. Kyle, what's next? Best production design. That <laughs> went to Mank, right? That went to Mank. That went yes. to Mank. That was silly. That went to Mank. Okay. All right. My number my number five. Tom's going to be mad, but my number five is West Side Story. My number four, The Tragedy of Macbeth. My number three, The Power of the Dog. My number two, Nightmare Alley. And my number one, Dune. I tend to go off of with this category. Same with costume and stuff. If you had to invent things, I, I give you more credit than if you were going off of historical photos of things. But also, like, Dune, impressive production design. Nightmare Alley, some of the best production design in a good long while. Uh, good category. I have no swaps. I think all of these are deserving nominees. Okay, number five, Dune. Number four, Power of the Dog. Number three, Macbeth. Number two, West Side Story. Number one, Nightmare Alley. Uh, yeah, this is a really good category, but I am taking two out. I'm putting in No Time to Die and The Green Knight. So deal with it. Kyle, what is next? Best Cinematography. Ooh, baby. Hey, Tom. What, what, are, oh. what won last year? Oh, Jesus. Fuck, did that go to Mank too? That also went to Mank, yeah. Jesus. You've been manked. Good movie. Uh, number five for me, Power of the Dog. Number four, Dune. Number three, West Side Story. Number two, Macbeth. Number one, Nightmare Alley. This is a great fucking category, and yet I'm still taking one out, and I'm taking Power of the Dog out to put in The Green Knight. Interesting. Very different rankings right now. My number five, Nightmare Alley. My number four, Dune. My number three, The Tragedy of Macbeth. Number two, West Side Story. Number one, Power of the Dog. I'm swapping out two. I'm swapping out Nightmare Alley for The Green Knight, and I'm swapping out Dune for The French Dispatch. Very good, very good. What's next, Kyle? Best makeup and hairstyling. What won last year? The Suicide Squad. Christ, did that go to Mank 2? It did not go to Mank. No, what? Um, it should have gone to Pinocchio, but it didn't. It was also yeah, it was not Pinocchio. What, what did it go to then? It it was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, should have gone to Pinocchio. Um, but whatever. I'm the only Absolute one that saw freak. that. Uh, okay. This was a category that I had ranked very differently. I think I tweeted out a very different ranking. Tom, uh, in conversation, uh, changed my ranking significantly. You did indeed. Um, my number five, number five, House of Gucci. Number four, Dune. Number three, The Eyes of Tammy Faye. Number two, Coming to America. And number one, Cruella. Uh, originally, Eyes of Tammy Faye was my number one. Tom pointed out some flaws with it, so I, I bumped down a bit. I would swap out House of Gucci for The Green Knight. Number five, Tammy Faye. Number four, Coming to America. Number three, House of Gucci. Number two, Dune. Number one, Cruella. Wow. I'll give it that. I'll give it that. <laughs> wow. And I'm swapping out two. I'm putting in Nightmare Alley and West Side Story because uh, what the fuck is Coming to America doing here? That's insane. That's truly just some fucking manatee bullshit. Now you got best costume design. Okay, let me find my costume somewhere higher on my list. Uh, and and while you do that, who won last year? Uh, last year, costume design was Ma Rainey, right? Yeah, it was Ma Rainey, yep. Okay, best costume design. Oh, I guess Tom goes first, but... yeah. Okay, so, best costume design. I haven't seen Cyrano, so that's off the list. So I'm going number four, Dune. Number three, West Side Story. Number two, Cruella. Number one, Nightmare Alley. I don't have swaps because I didn't okay. think this one through. I'm sorry. Uh, my number five, Nightmare Alley. Number four, Cyrano. Number three, West Side Story. Number two, Dune. Number one, Cruella. My thing with this category uh, tends to be similar to production design, which is like if you're replicating real history or, or historical photos, I, I tend to go more in favor of things that are a little more, you have to invent something, you know. Um, I would swap out Nightmare Alley in favor of a movie I've been saying a lot tonight, The Green Knight, which should be in all the technical categories. Yeah, that's fair. Best film editing. Okay. Um, okay. My, what, you know, one last year. Oh, last year, film editing. Did that go to Mank? I did not, no. Nomadland? Nope. Oh, Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal. Um, yeah, okay. My number five, Don't Look Up. My number four, Dune. Number three, King Richard. Number two, The Power of the Dog. And number one, with a boom, is Tick, Tick, Boom. Movie deserved more love. I would swap out Don't Look Up for The Last Duel. And I would swap out Dune for The French Dispatch. Okay, we got pretty close with this one. My number five is Don't Look Up. My number four is King Richard. My number three is Dune. My number two is Power of the Dog. And my number one is Tick, Tick, Boom. I am swapping out four. <laughs> so my four that are replacing the others is Nobody, West Side Story, The Green Knight, and Riders of Justice. Last but certainly not least, Best Visual Effects. Oh, wow. We're almost done already. Okay. That's it? Well, yeah, and then I'll talk about the fan favorites or whatever, but then we can wrap this up. Um, yeah. Crazy. Visual effects. Okay. Well, what won last year? Man. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Don't tell me. Well, that didn't help. I don't know what that was. Of course it did. Is that not how the Tenet song goes? Oh, Tenet won something last year? Tenet won for best visual effects. Okay. Okay. Right, I appreciate that one. All right. Um, okay. My number five, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. 
My number four, No Time to Die. My number three, Spider-Man No Way Home. Number two, Free Guy. And number one, Dune. I would swap out Shang-Chi for Godzilla versus Kong. And here's my hottest take. I almost want to swap No Time to Die for a movie called Ghostbusters Afterlife because early parts of Ghostbusters Afterlife, the ghosts look pretty good. And then that ending looks absolutely terrible. So I won't do that because that movie ends on a real bad note. But uh, that's my five. Okay. Haven't seen Free Guy. Will not be doing that in this lifetime. Number four, Shang-Chi. Number three, Spiderman. Number two, No Time to Die. And number one, Dune. I am swapping out three. I am putting in, as Mike did, Godzilla vs. Kong. I am putting in The Suicide Squad. And I am putting in Army of the Dead. Because I love the MCU more than a lot of fucking assholes on film Twitter. But Jesus Christ, sometimes they look cheap as shit. So, goodbye, Right. Now we have, I'm going to, I guess, look, we have to acknowledge it. There are more categories this year. <sighs> yep, there are. Do you want to do the cheer first or do you want to do the fan oh, favorite God, first? Oh, God, I'll do the fan favorite first because that makes me less mad than the cheer. Okay. Um, fan favorite, I don't hate, really. I don't hate the category and I don't think most of these are bad. There are 10 movies that have been shortlisted for the best fan favorite category that was voted on by Twitter um, this year. Uh, I don't necessarily see a problem with honoring some more populist films. The Oscars used did actually, despite what film Twitter wants to tell you, did actually used to be a little better about honoring populist films because all these people who pretend that the Oscars don't do that would have lost their goddamn minds the year that Rocky won Best Picture. They would have been furious about Rocky winning Best Picture. So anyway... I've seen nine out of the ten films shortlisted for best fan favorite, or nominated, I guess, for best fan favorite. Uh, one of them, Minamata, the Johnny Depp starring film that technically came out in 2020, but also hasn't come out at all, is only available to rent if you live in the UK. So I have a hard time believing most of the people who voted for this film even saw it. I think it's just more to do with the very weird Johnny Depp situation that's going on, the thing that the rest of us have all just kind of decided to move on from. But of the nine that I saw, here's how I rank them. Mostly pretty good. Number nine, Cinderella. It's not great. It's a rough watch. But I do kind of hate those weird dudes who keep referring to it as girl boss Cinderella in a really dismissive way. I don't know. Something feels weird about that. I feel like in 10 years we're going to find that all the dudes who dismissively said girl boss were just guys who didn't want to admit their issues with women. Anyway, uh, number eight, The Suicide Squad. Number seven, Sing 2. Number six, Army of the Dead. Number five, Dune. Number four, Spider-Man No Way Home. Number three, Tick, Tick, Boom. Fucking shocked that I'm going to say this. Number two, Malignant. Movie I did not uh, anticipate enjoying. And uh, number one, Power of the Dog. That's where I'm at on Oscar fan favorites. Tom, you've seen most of these, right? Okay, haven't seen Cinderella. Haven't seen the fucking nonsense Johnny Depp movie. So, um, uh, haven't seen Sing 2. Uh, <laughs> so I guess I go Dune. Tick, tick, boom. Spider-Man No Way Home. M- malignant. Uh, 
the Suicide Squad, um, the power of the... Do- I, I don't know. I, I, I don't fucking know. I mean, this is so stupid. Um, I, I guess with this ranking, Power of the Dog wins because it's my number one on that list. But, like, I don't know. Uh, 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 I just want to yeah. drink. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the movie cheer moment. This is stupid. I don't even mind the Oscar fan favorite, whatever. But the movie cheer moment's infuriating because Oscar fan favorite, they're at least trying to pull from all the movies this year. So people are just voting on the favorite movies this year. The Oscar cheer moment is asinine because they decided to pull from all of movie history. Anything was eligible, any moment in any movie at any point. So you would think that seems odd. Uh, Otter still, two of them are from this year? This is so fucking weird. But the five they selected um, in this in contention are, uh, I'll just tell them unranked, the three Spider-Man appearing in Spider-Man No Way Home, Avengers Assemble from Avengers Endgame, Bullet Time from The Matrix, I'm telling you I'm not going from Dreamgirls, and the Flash's Speed Force from Zack Snyder's Justice League. What the fuck are we doing? What is this? I mean, real, real, really, it just is down to what, what made the bigger splash, Avengers Assemble or Spider-Man team up, because I don't think the other three are even in contention. I disagree. The, I mean, if I'm ranking them, like, my ranking is number five, the Flash Speed Force, number four, three yeah. Spider-Men, number two, Avengers Assemble, I'm sorry, number... Number five, Flash Speed Force. Number four, three Spider-Man. Number three, Avengers Assemble. Number two, I'm telling you I'm not going. And number one, Bullet Time from The Matrix, because Bullet Time from The Matrix is an iconic game-changing moment that has been replicated a million times. I'm telling you I'm not going is a Star is Born moment that gets Jennifer Hudson an Oscar. And then Avengers Assemble is a really nice moment that culminates a great cinematic endeavor. Three Spider-Man is a cool moment in that movie that means a lot to Spider-Man fans and Marvel fans. And the flash of speed force is a really cool scene in Zack Snyder's justice league. But why are we pitting those against each other? If you're going to do this, it should be from movies this year. I don't understand this category. I don't understand well, what we're doing with this one. It's because movies, movies have only been invented since 1999. So. What the, f- I, what are we doing? So, those are the other two asinine categories. Tom, do you have a preference on movie cheer moments? No. All right. It's dumb. We're more than two hours into this at this point. I don't know if anybody stuck around for this inaugural bonus episode. Thank you guys for sticking around on this if you listen to this all the way through. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. If not, it's not going to sound like this again for another year because we have a whole bunch of regular You're Missing Out episodes. If you've never heard the show before, what we're doing is we're going through the films of the National Film Registry induction year by induction year. Uh, National Film Registry is a selection of films placed in the Library of Congress for preservation. Uh, We are going through these films to talk about not just if, but why they still matter. We have a great lineup coming up. Uh, Our first episode, Phil Iscove, one of the co-creators of the show Sleepy Hollow, uh, and one of the hosts of podcasts like it's 1999 is joining us to talk about all about Eve. Uh, his co-host, Kenny Nybart, uh, who also writes on uh, Step Up on Stars, is joining us to talk about Top Hat, the Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers musical. We're talking Great Train Robbery with Mike Scott of Action for Everyone podcast. We talk to Patrick Willems uh, about The Godfather. We're talking to uh, a whole bunch of people. We've got a whole bunch of interesting stuff coming up. Um, so I hope you guys will check it out. 
and stick around and tell your friends and uh, let us know what you think. Uh, You're Missing Out, Season 2, coming very soon. of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Register.